It's that time again. Hello, everybody. Happy Friday. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Rory Sodder and the News. I'm Rory Sodder, your host. I hope you all are doing very well. I hope you had a fantastic week. I hope you have exciting weekend plans. We have a big show tonight, a lot to address, a lot to establish, many notable names in attendance. Uh, my first guest, Jack Cashill, has ha- had a hell of a career. He's written many <laughs> books. He's done a lot in politics, a lot in various realms. Uh, he's a jack of all trades. Jack, it's good to have you back. Uh, hey, I, haven't had, I haven't had you on my show in a couple of years, but my friend, you've been up to a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, give the audience, you know, uh, your bio, your background, the 411, how it all started for you. Yeah, you know, it's uh, I, I got into this game pretty late, actually, because of um, I needed the Internet. So I'd been working basically in, in advertising. I segued from, from that into documentary making, filmmaking. And then when the Internet hit about 25 years ago, I realized that there was a ton of news that was going unreported and that I had access to that news now. So I, do- I dove in and uh, it's remarkable. And you know this, Rory, how many big stories the major media leave on the table for us independents to gobble up. And there's one after another. And the story I'm, I'm uh, talking about this time in, I will flash this, my new book, Untenable, yeah. um, is the story that's been essentially covered up for 60 years. And that is the whole story of white flight and the way it's been told to us from one generation to the next is like one lie from one generation to the next. And uh, it was a kind of a startling discovery of how little had been done to, to tell the truth about this subject. And, and since I grew up in the midst of it, I, I, was, I had a ringside seat. So it was a good project. And what happened, you know, to the white race? Because I'll tell you what, it's diminishing. It, we, well, are, we are becoming the minority. Well, you know, we're becoming silenced, if nothing else. And, and silenced and attacked and ridiculed. And we are the main target um, in, in all the... It's crazy. You know, what I, to get the title of my book, I, was, I just, by chance, I talked to... Um, I, I was talking to the people I grew up with who left our neighborhood. I grew up in Newark, New Jersey, yeah. which was sort of the poster child for urban dysfunction. And the city was collapsing around us. And I met up with, I talked to a lot of the people involved in not only in Newark, but other cities, Detroit, Chicago, St. Louis, Los Angeles. And uh, I asked this one friend who was my, the last guy out on our block. And he was living there with his widowed mother now. It's the early 1970s. And, uh, and he's one of the rare people to survive the transition from urban dweller to exile and remain a Democrat. Almost everyone I knew transitioned to Republican who or uh, went through that ringer. And I said, Artie, I said, why did you finally leave the block? And in a sense, he's arguing against interest here because he wants to preserve the illusion of, of Democrats doing things well in the cities. And he said, well, Jack, it became untenable. And I said, what do you mean by untenable? And he said, well, when your home gets invaded for the second time, that's untenable. When your mother gets mugged for the second time, that's untenable. Artie's story, times a million, is the story of a white flight in the 60s and 70s. 
Yeah, and, and I and I do have to ask, you know, coming from these areas, what's the thing that you learn the most? You know, it sounds like you you had it kind of rough growing up, and you were surrounded by various types of crime. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. Uh, you know, and my the first time. I was mugged and made the newspaper. I was nine years old, but you were not. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa! You got to explain right. this to the audience. You're nine years old. You get right. mugged. Wait, wait, okay, so where were you at? Tell the story. Well, I was walking home from uh, the, the grocery store. It's a block from my house, and my mother gave me five dollars, which was an unusual amount of money for me to carry. And, and back in those days, explain to everybody, $5 was a lot of money when you were growing up. It's like, up. like 50 today almost. Or close Holy to moly, dude. So I put the, I, I, and I, I never get more than like a nickel or a dime, I usually. So my mother gave me lots of cautions. I come out of the store. I put the $3 in my back pocket, $3 change. Yeah. And I'm walking up the street on my block now. I'm just, you know, 100 yards from my house. And I, a pair of hands come across my eyes. Yeah. And I said, hey, Earl, what's going on? Earl was my black friend who lived nearby, you know? Yeah. And once they started reaching into my pockets, I realized that wasn't Earl. Uh, and I turned around, you know, by the time I figured out what was going on, they had already were taking, they had run the other direction. And all I saw were three black kids running away. Uh, they were bigger than I was. So here's where it gets, the human interest story comes in, because I, I go home and tell my mother, who's a hard cookie? And so first she grills me to make sure I didn't steal the money. And uh, I knew she would. I was more afraid of her than I was the muggers. And then she goes, those bastards mugged the wrong kid because my father was a youth aid detective for the Newark Police Department. So she calls him. He's only working two blocks away. He comes home and we go to the neighborhood school, which is about half black at the time, and the public school. And uh, we went class to class until we... I walk, I couldn't find, I, I only saw these guys from behind. I was like uh, at a loss. We go to the last classroom, true story. And I'm really embarrassed now. And my father's beginning to doubt me and everything, you know. And we walk into the last class and his kid in the front row does this, right? <laughs> and I said, Dad, I think that's one of the guys, you know. And he jumps up and he says, I didn't take that boy's $3, you know. And then he proceeded to go down to principal's office. My father said, no one did say that, you know? Yeah. How did you know those details? So he ratted out his two buddies and the human interest part of it made the, made the news. But one thing you do learn, and it's just an illustrative in this story, is that a good friend, we had good black friends. So we didn't generalize about black people. We right. knew them, but we didn't romanticize them either. We didn't glorify them. Right. We knew them to be people like us. Human beings, we all bleed the same blood. We don't put them on pedestals, you know? That's right. So when, when, no you know, special when, treatment, I think everybody should be treated, you know, equally. I mean, we all, like you just said. Yeah. So I, I did not buy into the whole guilt stuff that was, right. You know, white, uh, white guilt is what you're talking about. Right. Going viral through universities and uh, corporations and whatnot. And, and I talking was talking about, you know, how white people are, are racist and, you know, we're privileged and we have everything that all these other people don't have. It's ridiculous. You know, and especially when I tell the stories in the book of some of my really hard luck cousins and stuff who were, you know, didn't even graduate from grade school. And I have one cousin who can't read and write and he's made a great living for himself and raised three great kids. But the secret is to get married and stay married. And that uh, that that notion had was collapsing in, in the inner cities. And it still is. 
and it's the cause of every major disparity down the road. You know, if as in Black America now, 64% of the kids are are growing up without a father in a home, and that's that's, you know, you get one bad kid on a block, you could deal with it. Maybe you get two, three, four, five, and now your block is a jungle. You're it's out of control. I, I thought it was over 70%. It depends on what, what numbers you see. I, I checked recently just for the sake of, you know, um, uh, accuracy. The number I saw was 64 for blacks and that's 16, crazy. That's crazy. percent for Asians. So it's how many percent for Asians? 16. Oh my God, man. Yeah. Yeah. The Asians are all about family values. They keep right. everybody together. What is yeah. it for white people? It's about 24. What about Hispanics? Uh, it's about 48. And so, I mean, but considering, but you know, that's interesting. The, the Hispanic number, because I've always known Hispanics to be very family oriented. You know, they're very religious. Most yeah. of them, uh, that's high. That's really high for the Hispanic community. It is. And part of it is because, uh, and, and it varies from uh, one ethnic group within the Hispanic over, you know, uh, oversoul. But so, for instance, Puerto Ricans are come to America pre-corrupted. You know, Puerto Rico has been a welfare state for, you know, forever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But when Cubans come, they come pretty hardcore family oriented. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it depends on the ethnic group. Mexicans are someplace in between. But when they get here, if you're on the lower end of the spectrum, and this is what happened in the 60s. The government dangles a whole series of programs in front of you. So you want Medicaid, you want uh, food stamps, you want, um, you know, you want uh, uh, discounted housing, you want uh, welfare, AFDC. The catch is you have to get the old man out of the house. He cannot legally be on that lease as a married husband. Otherwise, all those benefits go away. So if you're a struggling you know, say Mexican immigrant family, even if you got here legally and you see what's going on around you and you say, hey, uh, Jose, you know, hit the road because we can do much better off without you here technically. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's what's it's corrupting. You know, it's corrupting white culture as well. Rural white culture is in trouble. Yeah. And what about Muslims and Indians? What What's their household number like? Uh, Muslims are pretty tight, uh, as are Indians. Um and, you know, most Asian uh, ethnic groups are pretty tight as well. And that's partly why they do so relatively well. So if one, if blacks were 64% of the kids living in uh, fatherless homes, likely often disordered or chaotic, and they're competing against Asian kids who are home doing their homework, you know, every night and, and being sent off, you know, you can't get watch TV before you watch, do your homework, et cetera. And they're, you're, they're supposed to compete on equal footing in school. That's not going to happen. Who, who has the best score? Uh, among ethnic groups, Asians, easily, you know. Yeah. Um, and who's second? Whites, you know, in general, generally speaking. Yeah. But, you know, the uh, immigrants from the West Indies and uh, Africa do much better in America economically than do African-Americans. Right. And it's partly because they come. A, with ambition, and B, with their families intact. Yeah. And going going back to this whole mugging scenario, I have to ask you, did those kids get arrested that mugged you since your father was able to track them down and he worked for the police department? They were they were apprehended. They were, I just, you know, what I was doing is... Uh, or back in those days, did they really arrest people for stuff? I mean, what, what was it more lenient back then? Well, the kids were 11 and 12. 
Oh, okay, okay. I thought, they, like, I thought they might have been like 15 or 16 because uh, that would have been like juvie, you know? Because when I was researching uh, Untenable, my book, uh, yeah, uh, I, I found the newspaper clipping, you know, which is kind of cute. Uh, but they were released to the uh, custody of their parents. Oh. Because at that time, most black kids had parents, plural. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Speak on that. Because back in those days, a lot of black families and black individuals were Republican and it was family values. Explain yeah. that. Talk about that, because you're absolutely right. I was reading all about that for a long time. Yeah, I know. Uh, I mean, historically, blacks and Republicans coming out of the Civil War. Now, um, the, the uh, Roosevelt administration started working on their resolve, on their agency. In other words, uh, the Democrats from Roosevelt on have had a vested interest in making people dependent on the government. And some people did it out of like high-minded motives, but a lot of them did it like LBJ. Great society. He, he was buying votes. He knew that. Great society. He, he, right. He was trying to buy the loyalty of the black population. That's not how he phrased it. Look, look up the real phrase. I'm like, oh, I know. I'll have these, you know, what's voting right. for 200 years. Yeah. That's I won't it. say the word, but it, right. that's the quote. And, uh, and, and he was successful. And the great society was in a sense, the, you know, the gathering point for all these programs. And, and if their intention was to destroy the black family and to assure that they remain dependent on the government for the foreseeable future and to make sure that they never succeeded at levels they might have expected after the Civil Rights Act passed, he did a brilliant job. The Ku Klux Klan could not have done a good job as LBJ did. Hey, Jack, why do you think the black community bought into this narrative and into this big policy so much? Why, why do you think they couldn't read, read between the lines? I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, I do. And it's, they're not good ones necessarily. Uh, when I say black community, I'm talking about black leadership. And you know, for the first, the civil rights establishment found its footing battling institutional white racism. It was a real thing that really existed. And, and, it, and it, the resistance created heroes and martyrs like Medgar Evers and, and Martin Luther King. Yeah. When the institutional white racism gradually changed to institutional white guilt, you went from having fighters to having opportunists. People, instead of working to benefit the black community, they were working to exploit it. So the, when you can make a transition from Martin Luther King to Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton, you see the trajectory that community has been on. And the white liberal media have been only too happy to allow people like Jackson and Sharpton to be spokespeople for the black community. And, uh, and much to their detriment. And once there was no longer institutional racism, and it's been gone for 60 years, I don't care what they try to tell you, uh, then you have to make believe there's institutional racism. That's when you, you go from you know, fighting the Ku Klux Klan to having two MAGA supporters mug you at eight, uh, two o'clock in the morning in a Chicago evening when it's eight degrees below zero and they just happen to have bleach and a, a noose with them. You know, That's how degraded that uh, paradigm has become because they have to create these uh, injustices so they could fight against them, you know? Right. And it sounds like you had quite a few run-ins with, you know, different 
uh, you know, just things that were traumatic as a child. Uh, what, what in regards to, was the mugging, um, the worst scenario that, uh, no, in fact, today I just had lunch. I'm down in the Jersey shore, uh, which is the refuge for a lot of people from the northern cities like Newark, Camden, Passaic, et cetera. Uh, uh, the, the friend and I had lunch today. We were, we were held up at gunpoint when we were 11 at rifle point. Uh, at the time, I only had a nickel with me. So uh, they, they let me keep my nickel on the positive side. But I vowed never to tell my parents again. Because what happens if you tell your parents you've been mugged or something, they curtail your freedom. Yeah, they don't want you to go out. They said you're right. not leaving the house. Yeah. And, and also, after I uh, kind of made a splash with the previous mugging, uh, and the, the rumor was spread that I fought these guys off, which was a rumor that I was happy to encourage, yeah. which wasn't true, but it was, I liked the rumor. Uh, the guys who mugged me didn't like the rumor, so they and a bunch of their homies came looking for me uh, and reprisal. But fortunately, I wasn't where they thought I'd be, so. I, I managed to avoid that. No, it was getting bad. And uh, everyone I talked to, uh, Rory, for my book, Untenable, the true story of a yeah. white ethnic flight from America cities, um, had a tale. They all left because some incident triggered them. It was the enough is enough moment. This was true also for responsible black parents. They did the exact same thing. Uh, and I cite several instances in the book, including... Michelle Obama's family, Oof. including uh, Donde, uh, Donde West, Kanye's mother, uh, Sissy Houston, Whitney Houston's mother, all had bad experiences, all said, we're out of here, and they fled to the suburbs or to some safer part of the city yeah. uh, for the same reason, and they were running from the same people, except they were not shamed for leaving. Only yeah. whites were shamed for leaving, and they've had to bear that stigma ever since. You know, you brought up Donda West and, uh, you know, Kanye has been in the headlines quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he he's made a lot of sense, but I think he needs to put it in better context. I think he needs to phrase things a little better. Um, but I, I, I admire that he's trying to really wake up the black community and open their eyes to the reality of how the Democrats have been using them. Right. And I, I, that takes a hell of a, a hell of a lot of bravery, especially right. in, in the industries he, industry he's in. I mean, a lot of people just are quiet and they just, right. you know, do their job, but he's so powerful enough that he, he has such a, a powerful brand that him speaking up doesn't really affect him, you know, like it would with somebody that's, on a lower level, if that makes sense. Right, you're right. If you're on a lower level and you're depending on someone to hire you, right, and that's not just in the music industry or entertainment. That's corporate America. That's universities. That's everything. Now. So right. white people are petrified to speak out. And yeah. uh, I'll give you an instance. I was a month or so ago. I was asked to participate in a debate on reparations. Right, yeah. a subject about which I know a lot. Well, I'm in California, so you know it's a big thing here. <laughs> And uh, this is Kansas City. Yeah. And the debate was to be televised on a public TV station. And uh, they had no trouble finding the three participants on the pro reparation side, right? And I quickly, they asked me right away, I said, sign me up, happy to do it. And it took them a long, hard look to find the second person 
to be on my side and anti-reparations, even though everyone I talk to and everyone you talk to, Rory, would say, this is nuts. This is crazy. This is impossible, you know? And when you were studying Donda West, did you think she was a very intelligent, fascinating, uh, admirable individual? I mean, she really put a lot of confidence in Kanye. I mean, she yeah. really made him into this big, big star and uh, always taught him that he can do whatever he wanted as long as he, you know, just kept believing and never gave up. Uh, that's exactly the way I felt. And she's, you know, and she was a university professor. Yeah. And um, she was um, her own person, right? Like yeah. Kanye. Um, yeah. And I watched that. I not only read her bio, her bio uh, but I... Uh, or memoir about Kanye, but uh, I watched the Netflix special about Kanye. Me too. Yeah. yeah. Which is pretty interesting. And you know what also happens, and this is, has nothing to do with our topic really, but we saw this happen to Elvis. We saw this happen to Michael Jackson. Anyone who reaches that level of stardom as an individual, let alone like a Britney Spears or Lindsay Lohan, boy, the pressure is such that very few of them survive fully intact, you know? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And Elvis and Michael Jackson were conservative as well. I mean, they were Republican. Yeah, yeah you're right. But it was um, uh, it was it, it works on their personalities, even if they try to resist it, that level, that intensity of it wasn't so much so for the Beatles, where you have a group of people, but that individual who's the focus of all that attention. I mean, it's got to be difficult. Look at you, Rory, star like yourself. It's probably difficult bending women off and admirers and everything. But <laughs> magnify that by a thousand, you know. It's a, I hear you. I hear you, man. It's a, it's an interesting world. And where um, in California are you, by the way? Sorry? Where where are you in California? Uh, Palm Springs. I live in Palm Springs. Oh, okay. very good, very good. I've been yeah. here. The Frank Sinatra's oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. home, Bob Hope lived here. Yeah. Uh, Marilyn Monroe, uh, Sammy Davis, Dean Martin. It has a lot of uh, old school history. It's a very, it's a very cool place. I love it here. I, I, uh, my favorite Palm Springs uh, person was Sonny Bono. Sonny uh, Bono. He was the mayor. Yes. Yeah. And later the Republican congressman. You know? Yeah. He was great, man. Yeah. He was great. And it's a tragedy that he died in that skiing accident. That is because he was, uh, he was willing. He could have been the kind of person who could have opened the doors of Hollywood to uh, outspoken yeah. conservatives. Yeah, and, he, and he, you know what he was good at? And I, I've read a lot about him and I've watched, you know, interviews with him and just old footage of footage of him speaking. He was very unifying. He could bring right. people together. He was, right. very, he was very friendly too. Because Palm Springs now is a pretty heavily gay community, is it not? Yeah, it's about, I would say, 30%. But from what I could perceive, it's the right. conservative end of the gay spectrum. Who settled in Palm Springs? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, there are a lot of conservative gay people here. Yeah. If I had, but there, you got, you got to understand. There's also a lot of working class and a yeah. lot of a lot of retirees. Right. So if I had to say the political demographic, I would say it's sixty forty. I would say Palm's like just this area, the valley, right. Right. Uh, and the surrounding. I would say sixty percent Democrat, forty percent Republican. Okay, sixty forty. It used to be probably sixty forty the other way. You know, in Sunny yeah. Bonus Day, but yeah. right, right. But, um, no, the the phenomenon I'm talking about, and and this, I mean, I had to show my book again here if you don't mind. So, yeah. uh, and untenable is uh, it's nationwide. It happened everywhere. 
I had some interesting accounts. You know, one person who I, whose work I, re, I relied on a lot because he's a, an old friend and I, I've helped him on occasion before with stuff is uh, Jesse Lee Peterson. Oh, he's been on my show. He was on my show a couple months ago. I, I love him, man. I love that guy. He is my, one of my heroes. I mean, him and I just laughed and laughed and oh, laughed yeah. and laughed. And, oh, God, he is so unique. He is so one of a kind, man. And I uh, edited his book, Antidote, uh, which if you haven't read it, you really should. Because his story, uh, and I and I excerpt big parts of his story from my book because it's so Ill, it so refutes the narrative of uh, what happened to uh, African Americans in the, the 60s and 70s. Yeah, because he grew up in Alabama. He didn't even know any white people. There weren't any in his world, and a conservative, you know, Christian uh, environment. And but his parents had split. He goes to Gary, Indiana, looking for his mother. And by the time he gets there in the 60s, the city was collapsing. Uh, I mean, the black culture was collapsing. He, he was shocked by the level of violence and disrespect, things that he'd never see in Alabama. And this was before the job started and the industry started leaving. So in other words, the, 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 uh, the storyline now is that, well, when the big industries left those cities, Poor people were left to, you know, go on welfare. No, they were on welfare before, while there were still big industries. So at 18, without any experience, Jesse Lee Peterson gets a job at Inland Steel, a high-paying job, because they were they needed people. And the problem is in these cultures, when the family collapses, uh, the young people are uh, either unable or unwilling to hold a job. So the job market contracts for the, the pool of ready employers. And I know a lot of today that's happening in rural America because uh, so many young white people are are going down this road. And my friends who have businesses are saying, we have a hard time getting and keeping people to work because they'd rather be home cooking math or whatever, you know. So it's a it is a, uh, uh, you know, it's an ongoing crisis uh, everywhere in America, but more so obviously in, in black America. We good? Hey, Jack. Yeah. yeah. I'm coming right back on in one minute. I'm literally reconnecting right now. Okay, very good. Uh, will I get a new link or I just stay? Oh, you just stay. I'll be right back. Okay.
Hey, sorry about that. Sorry about that, Jack. I'm back right now. As you were saying, though, as you were saying. Yeah, I, I, as I was saying, the, um, uh, the there is a problem in white America now, too. It's, it's we've reached the point uh, of uh, sort of broken home and parentlessness, fatherlessness, that it's we're losing our labor force. It's uh, people are, you know, either unwilling or incapable of showing up for work. And uh, my friends who are rural employers are uh, beginning to wonder I mean, how they're going to sustain that. Uh, it's unfortunate because it's unnecessary. But no one wants to talk about this issue, and that's why it's been allowed to fester. And what do we do about the media and these politicians, especially on the left, continuously telling the black community that the white man is bad, the white man is out to get you, the white man has better has better you know treatment than you do, you need to fight back against the white man, blame them for all your problems. Because I see a pattern here, and it's not stopping. And it's amazing what mind control and brainwashing can really do. Because I tell you, uh, Jack, uh, regardless of race or whatever, 70% of our population is naive and gullible. Oh, totally. And, uh, you know, I watched uh, the Robert Kennedy testify uh, at the uh, weaponization hearings. And they oh, reached yeah. a point... Uh, the Democrats were, they were ruthless in calling him a racist and anti-Semite. Uh, they, they call anyone that. It's their card. You know, he played that card, but he trumped them with his Kennedy card, which trumps, we know, which wins. But we don't have a Kennedy card to play. But every individual who's ever challenged that way needs to stand up and speak for themselves and say, you don't say, I'm not a racist. I have a black friend. Don't do that. Just say, I reject your hypothesis. I'm not even going to argue this. You've worn this this card down to the nub, you know. Unless you can tell me something that I need to know, we're not talking anymore. We yeah. need to find the courage to stand up. Nothing terrible is going to happen to you. Well, maybe it will, but you know, if you have a job, if you're, but if you're honest and forthright, I think you could say that in any environment. Uh, it's where you get into trouble uh, is when you start apologizing. You start backtracking. Yeah, yeah. And, and usually the people that are trying to, you know, have these arguments with us are white liberals. You know, these are, yeah. these are white social justice warrior liberals who right. want to they want to feel like they're a part of something. They don't give a shit about black lives. It's virtue nope. signaling at its finest. Because by calling you a racist, they make themselves think there's something better than that or above that. Right. And uh, they're not. Uh, so what we're witnessing now, Rory, is what I would call white flight 2.0. And that is the, you know, when we were kids, when my family left, it was the blue collar families that had to leave because we were being driven out of our homes. Most people were renters anyhow. They could not afford the close suburbs. So they had to flee to the distant suburbs and live in like these slapdash communities to bring pulled in New Jersey, like out of the Pine Barrens and right. or the equivalent out of outside Chicago. You know, no neighbors no one would really want to move to. Leaving neighbors that they considered idyllic, they were organic, functioning, happy neighbors with movie theaters and diners and everything. But um, so now the flight is from, is the laptop class, the skinny jeans crowd. Uh, they see the disorder they've created in the big cities, uh, the big woke cities, San Francisco, Los Angeles, 
uh, New York, Chicago, they're hemorrhaging hundreds of thousands of people. Virtually, all, you know, the great majority of them are white, but they never call it white flight. And they never talk about it as a bad thing. They don't even want to talk about it at all. And they won't tell you that cities like Tampa and uh, Dallas and, uh, you know, in the cities in the, in the red states, which have sane governors, uh, are not losing people. They're gaining people. And, but they'd rather talk about it collectively. Oh, there are people are leaving the cities. No, people are leaving certain cities because the people in control of those cities have effed them up beyond recognition. And, and I got to ask you, you know, the, the great replacement theory, have you paid much attention to that? that I, I'm aware Tucker of it. Carl, Tucker Carlson was talking about. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't put much stock in it in America. In Europe, it's different. And I've, I spent a fair amount of time in Europe. And I was just in France a couple of months ago. And it's amazing how all the people I talked to felt just the way I did about everything, you know. Uh, maybe it was the people I was hanging out with. But uh, in the United States, we've always, we've never been identified as a race. We've never been identified as a, having a racial history, despite what, you know, uh, our uh, liberal activists would like to think. Right. You know, and, and 300 years ago, the Dutch and the English and the Germans were as as a, uh, as at odds with each other as today, like, say, Cubans or it might be with Puerto Ricans or with Portuguese or or Chinese or whatever. That's always been our history. In Europe, however, it's a different story because you're replacing replacing entire cultures with other new cultures, with other fairly coherent cultures like Islamic cultures that want to take over your country, use your infrastructure, and then make it their own. We don't have that in the United States. It's not, it's not the same. And Jack, I'm seeing all these videos oh, you know, over there in Europe of yeah. Muslims and Islam taking over the entire streets. I mean, they're, and they've had survey, they've had surveys saying pretty soon there'll be more Muslims and, and immigrants there than the, the actual own people, you know? Yeah, um, I mean, the I mean, the number one boy's name in Europe for some time now has been Muhammad. I mean, so uh, that's happening. And uh, and the I mean, the only country I know of that's really resisting it is Hungary, you know, which is kind of interesting way they do it. They incentivize their native Hungarians to have babies in countries like France. Uh, Italy, Spain, uh, the the natives aren't having children, are, are having they're not having replacement level children. The only people who are, are immigrants, and uh, they are uh, in a sense anticipating the demise of their own cultures. They're almost paving the way for it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Jack. And do you think what's going on in Europe is going to? Really, I mean, it's hard, it's happening in a way in America. Obviously, it's not that excessive yet. But do you think it's going to get to that point? No, uh, because uh, what happens in the United States is that, um, you know, people who come here, uh, even people who come here illegally, although I, I don't like that at all. That's problematic. Is they're chasing the same dream. They want to be Americans. You know, they want to, you know, uh, it's like... Um, the scene at the end of the, mo the movie, uh, oh, what's the name of the movie? Oh, yeah, it's too involved. I'll to come back to it later. But they're, they're, they're coming, they're chasing the same dream. Yeah, Muslims aren't coming here to establish a caliphate. They're coming here to get rich and make money. You know? So 
Right. Same thing with Iranians, same thing with Hispanics. And none of these are sufficiently strong a block to uh, take over the culture. So there's no urge other than in some little teeny pockets, and these are radical outliers, for Hispanic people to make America the new Mexico. I mean, that's not happening. Uh, Nor will it happen because they left Mexico because they don't want to live in Mexico. Whereas the people who are coming into France, say, or Italy, coming right across the Mediterranean, and they want to make uh, France the new caliphate, you know? They have no interest in assimilating. You know, they think that uh, native French culture, British culture, Italian culture is corrupt and decadent and and inferior. And the French and the British and Italians are playing into their hands by being, you know, corrupt and decadent. Right. They need to strengthen their cultures, not as well as to strengthen their borders. They need to remind themselves who they are and what they've built and what they've, you know, uh, it's going to be a long time before someone builds a new Notre Dame. Right. No, I agree. I agree. And I, I got to ask you, because I know you have been directing your focus towards this and paying a lot of attention, paying a lot of, of attention to this narrative and the headlines, uh, the Russia Ukraine war. Um, yeah. I just want it to be over. You know, um, I have, uh, I am not a fan of Ukraine. I don't mean either, uh, man. I mean, I, I, to, to me personally, I think Zelensky's more corrupt than Putin. Uh, I think he's more corrupt than Putin. He's not probably not quite as scary as Putin because he depends <laughs> on that. You know, definitely, and, definitely not. Putin, Putin, <laughs> would, Putin would destroy him in a second. I mean, right. Zelensky's a beta male. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Putin's Putin's an alpha. I mean, right. Putin, Putin may have done some bad things, but he's still an alpha male. That guy means business. And uh, he's not he's not messing around. And he's a champion of Russian culture. Right. He loves his country. He's a nationalist. And, you know, people make him out to be the boogeyman. But to me, he's only he's the only one being the voice of reason in this war. He's wanted peace. He's asked for a a ceasefire. And Zelensky has said no numerous times because he's getting influenced by all these other world leaders and by dickhead Biden in the White House. Right. He gets to be the, the prima donna, you know, he gets yeah. to be back to his old gay, you know, dancing comedians. <laughs> yeah, those videos. He saw those <laughs> in women's lingerie and he was in heels. What a fruitcake, man. I, I don't know what his predilections are. He has a wife, but. Oh, so. yeah, but that, that's a beat. You know what they call it? That's a beard, dude. That's a cover up. That's not even real, man. But uh, he, no, he, he's a sodomite. He's definitely a sodomite. From day one, I said to all these people flying Ukrainian flags. What does victory look like? Oh, what, Ukraine's going to capture Russia? No, I mean, you can't win this. Let's, you know, let's negotiate our way out of this, you know, with a, you know, a decent uh, peace and you know, an honorable peace and get back to business. And Jack, but did you see how low we are on ammo? Did you see, I saw you know, that. oh, our, our supply? I mean, what the hell are we going to do? How are they going to explain this in the end? Because eventually it's going to have to end, and it's going to end very badly for Ukraine. And the mean, mainstream media narrative wants to convince all these people that Ukraine is dominating and winning, which in reality, Russia is absolutely killing them. Right. And Russia's only killing them to the degree they need to. I mean, they just want their territories back that are Russian, that are right. ethnically Russian. Um, right. So it's not like they're taking 
you know, uh, and the comparisons to Hitler are ridiculous. They always were. And ah, that's ridiculous. Uh, I hate when they compare Putin to Hitler. It's stupid. It's so stupid. It's like they compare Trump to Hitler. They compare anybody they I mean, don't like in the media to Hitler. And yet if you do it. They, they compare DeSantis to Hitler. I mean, it's so stupid. And yet uh, yesterday, uh, Robert Kennedy got scolded. Uh, oh, and they compared for- him to Hitler, too. I remember that on <laughs> CNN. They compared Robert Kennedy. He, you know, they called him a type of Hitler with some of his ideology. Now, it's the only people winning this are the interna- international black market arms dealers. Between Afghanistan, Afghanistan and Ukraine, they're, they have a supply to last them for several lifetimes. And Jack, look at Raytheon. Look at all these mili- this, these military companies and their stocks are skyrocketing. Uh, it, it's it's really so much about the money. I mean, it's pretty much all about the money. I mean, this military industrial complex is on fire right now, doing better than ever. Yeah, and I think, you know, for the Bidens, uh, I think they want to, make sure that their people stay in control of the records. You know, they can't have afford to have Russia take over the administration, right? Because they, they would be able to, you know, to discover a whole lot more about what the, the Bidens have done in Ukraine. It's a crazy world where it's, it is the craziest three years in probably in American history. And Jack, you've, you know, studied China quite a bit. Um, what do you think about China and Taiwan? Do you think that obviously it's inevitable, but do you, when do you see it transpiring and taking place? And because you know, we're going to have to, I mean, it looks like we're going to have to defend Taiwan, which I think defending Taiwan is way more just justifiable uh, than Ukraine, because I think the semiconductor scenario is a really big deal. And right. China really wants to get their hands on that because I mean, that is, uh, dominating the world right now, those semiconductors. Oh, yeah, you're right. I think it's totally more legitimate. Uh, the, uh, you know, we should never have been in even this position. I, in my book, uh, Ron Brown's Body, I talk about how basically the Clinton administration, this is a, a dirty story that's been, been never gotten the attention it deserves, how they basically sold out the American uh, arms secrets for campaign cash in 96, for the 96 election. Uh, they gave them everything they wanted. Uh, they helped them perfect the Long March missile. I mean, it was crazy what they were doing. In 1992, I believe that was the year of Tiananmen Square, China was international pariah, right? And then Clinton runs for office saying uh, against Bush, calling Bush a friend of the butcher of Beijing, right? Next thing you know, Clinton is getting uh, China into the World Economic Forum. He's giving them all these supplies and guns and gains and and he's militarizing them. He's allowing their military to, they were laughable 30 years ago as a superpower. And now I'm not sure we can beat them. I mean, and, and how do you feel about all these Republican candidates uh, running right now? I mean, what, what, do, you, what do you see? Uh, who are you impressed with? Well, I, I, here's a, when it comes to inter, intramural battles, uh, Rory, I have my favorites, but I don't talk about it. I, I focus all my energy on the real enemy. I mean, I could live with any one of them, not happily, but other than maybe who's running, uh, Asa Hutchison or some clown. You know, I mean, uh, I could live with Vivek. I could live with even Tim Scott. I mean, they would, uh, I, other than what we have now, we need a victory in 2024 to to save the nation. And I mean, uh, you, oh, Go ahead. Keep going. Keep going. No, and that's 
And I, I'm voting for whatever Republican wins the nomination. Who Otherwise, think, I'm going to stay out of it. Who do you think will be the nominee? Uh, I would say if I were, I'd say the odds on favorite now is Donald Trump. But there are, speaking of odds, there are so many wild cards afoot, you know, that uh, you never know. You never know. And even though they're only, uh, you know, we're not that far out from about six months from the first primaries. And, and Jack, I have to ask you, do you think these indictments will will ruin him, will sink him? Because these people at, at the top are very powerful that are coming after. I'm just yeah, uh, and it's, I mean, it's relentless. I mean, these people never stop. They want uh, something that's going to stick. And they're brazen. They're doing it in our face. It's like they're daring us to start a new rev- a revolution, right? And uh, as I think the Babylon Bee headline was something like, uh, I said something like that, uh, Trump counting on third indictment to boost himself in polls. You know, it's like, I mean, the first two bo- worked to his favor, you know. I don't know. There may be a tipping point, but uh, I think the Democrats are trying to get Trump nominated. I think that's their, they think is their only hope. Is Why they, they they think nominating him in your in your eyes is is they think he's easy to beat. They think he's a unelectable. No, I, I wouldn't say unelectable. Uh, I think from their perspective, they think he'd be easier to beat than whatever clown they put up. I don't believe it's going to be Biden. Do you think it's going to be Newsom? I think it's going to be Newsom. They, I would say I would if I were smart money now, I would say Newsom. I wouldn't rule out Michelle Obama, you know, or any kind of milk toasty candidate. If Trump is the nominee, they figure they could sell anyone, you know, like the governor of Michigan or Amy Klobuchar or someone like that, you know. Then what happens uh, to Camilla? She's gone. She's history. Yeah, she, they're, no, they're not going to run her. But what they really fear is a, a Newsom DeSantis runoff where, yeah, yeah, it's Florida versus California, <laughs> you know. And how does Newsom run with San Francisco and Los Angeles? Is it national disgraces now, you know? I, now, I got to ask you, Robert Kennedy, do, do you think – Cause I really like him, man. He, you know, I agree with 80 to 90% of his stances. Yeah. He, he is really talking about things that other politicians won't even go near. I like Robert Kennedy a lot. Yeah. Uh, if the Democrats were smart, they'd co-opt him, make him their nominee. Cause if he's their nominee, he's the next president. Oh yeah. I think he could bring the country together. I think yeah. he's the voice of reason. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of things that he doesn't talk about that he, you know, he's quiet about. Like his take on affirmative action was pathetic. You know, his take on on guns is pathetic. Uh, but uh, and his take on abortion is, uh, you know, wishy-washy. I mean, the uh, and yet uh, I root for him, you know, when he's uh, confronting these people. I root for him because we share the same enemies and he seems like a person you could talk to. And what, what, which is why I said I agree with about 80 to 90 percent. But you brought up two things that I, I can't agree with him on it. And I and I totally disagree with him on because I'm pro-life and yeah. I'm pro-Second Amendment. So right. th- those are two big things that, you know, he's not really for. So that's an issue. But it's so hard because there's so many other things that like going after the Federal Reserve. 
going after the FBI, oh, going sure. after the CIA, going after Fauci. I mean, nobody talks harder against Big Pharma than him. He is no, so. No, no. I read the real Anthony Fauci, and that's a, just a, a mind changing book. And, uh, and here's something else he did because I started writing about this. I said, because as recently as 10 years ago, he was a rabid climate change guy. Yeah, he, was he wanted arguing. people locked. I saw a video. He wanted people locked up. Yeah, right, jail. exactly. Yeah. Where he was saying that if you're, you know, if you believe in climate, I put that in my 2015 book, Scarlet Letters. I so, so over the top that they should be imprisoned if they're skeptical of climate change. Yeah. yeah. So when I saw after the COVID thing, I saw he was running for president. I uh, looked at the uh, his uh, presidential website and we see what he said about climate change. And you know what he says? Nothing. There's no reference to climate change, no reference to global warming. He may be the only Democrat in America who's not saying those things. He's sobered up because he's understood that the same paradigm, the same oppressive class uh, thing that drove COVID, the bad science of COVID into our lives is driving climate change. He still has some education to go. I think he can be educated on that. I think he can be educated on abortion. You know, you're, you're the head of the fund called the Children's uh, what is it, Health Defense or whatever, and you're killing a million babies here? No, that's, come on, Bob. You got to sober up on this. He's still a limousine liberal. He still needs to be sobered up. But I saw his thing where, but he stood up to those Democrats who were assailing him for racism and anti-Semitism. Yeah. And then I'm thinking, go, Bob, go. And then he starts talking about Ted Kennedy as the guy who brought people together. I said, sorry, stop, Ted, stop. I know he's your uncle, but you remember the Rob, what he did to Robert Chap <laughs> And Chappaquiddick. I mean, we could talk about a lot of things. Yeah, right. Stop with the uncle stuff. Drop that, you know. Stick to big pharma. Stick to, uh, you know, uh, the censorship the angle, which is incre incredible. It'd be nice if you could have a, a conversation with a Democrat. You know, you really can't. I am... Uh, Right now, in the, I'm in New Jersey Shore with my extended family, about 50 of us. And they will not talk. You know, we're split. We skew a little bit right, but not a lot. And I hope they're not overhearing me because they simply won't engage in any kind of conversation. If they do, they get, they get emotional and uh, they get angry. And, you know, I say to them, I said, you know, I, I said I'm burdened by information. I, you know, I've written 15 books now and yeah. Most recently, of course, Untenable, the true story of a white ethnic flight from America's cities. Right. But um, I said, I feel like the the uh, kung fu expert at the end of the bar, you know. I really don't want to mix it up with you guys. <laughs> you know, I know too much. But if you're going to push me, I'm going to come into this fight. And you're going to be lucky to leave with your uh, your your head on your shoulders. It's... Uh, because we know much more than they do. We know what they know, but they have no idea about what we know. And they've been told it's misinformation, this, that, and the other thing. Um, so uh, their cluelessness is, is pretty impressive. Yeah, and I wanted to mention about Robert Kennedy real quick that you know he came out, and I really respect him for this. He said that the Democrats are weaponizing and, and using climate change for totalitarian control which is that's totally right. true that's right he's ab absolutely right and i saw him say that i and that that again said okay you know i could live oh here's what I, can I don't do. see any other democrat saying that which is so brave and and the right you know he's doing the right thing but go ahead keep going sorry 
if he were elected president, I would not start inquiring into, uh, you know, residences abroad. You know, I would, I would, feel, I could sleep at night. You know, I wouldn't yeah, be happy, about it, but you know, I could, I could live with it. But what did you think about that? Were you pretty impressed when he came out and said that? Yeah, I was waiting for that. You know, because I had been, uh, you know, I read, like I said, I read the real Anthony Fauci, but I, in my 2015 book, Square Letters, I wrote about his comments on the Koch brothers and, you know, and they should be in prison, blah, 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 because of their stance on they, they don't believe in climate change. And I said, okay, Bob, you've got to see the parallels between the COVID uh, uh, tyranny and the climate change tyranny, they're almost identical. You know, all scientists agree. You can't disagree. If you uh, put something up, if, if I put something up on my Facebook page, I'm shadow banned. It's nuts. I mean, you're coming down to that level to make sure that nothing gets out. Climate change, COVID, bam. No one gets to see it. Maybe six people or something, you know. I hear you, man. You probably experienced that yourself. And uh, uh, when they... Uh, they don't want to know certain things. Or if I link now to almost anything, I'll be shadow banned on Facebook. Oh yeah. They just, they just banned my Twitter account. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They didn't even give me a reason. Uh, yeah, I'm, ba- I'm banned permanently from Twitter. And I, I had, I had thousands and thousands and thousands of followers and I was doing so well on there and no legitimate reason. They just said I'm banned permanently. Um, probably because of the conservative beliefs. I mean, I can't that, think of, I can't was think that of post Elon, Was that post-Elon Musk or was it pre-Elon? No, just today, to today I got an email when I woke up this morning saying I'm permanently banned. And well, if I want to appeal it, I can. But I've heard appealing doesn't really do much because they don't really look at it or respond. They don't really care. And so they say- Elon, I don't know what Elon, I mean, obviously he took over. He's trying to do the best he can. But he's got a lot of people. There's still a lot of people behind the scenes uh, overseeing operations that I believe are because think about it. All these ex FBI, ex CIA individuals that have been involved with Twitter. I mean, it's a long, long rabbit hole, you know. And it's like similarly when Trump uh, ran the Justice Department. Yeah, he may have run it nominally, but 90 percent of the people there were working against him. They were holdovers, you know. They were, they were hardcore. Yeah, and, and Jack, Jack, you're, you're, didn't you get some bans on some social medias? I thought you got censored on various things. I got, uh, you know, I've been, I get banned periodically on Facebook, shadow banned, which you know what that means. That is that maybe a dozen people get to see you, so you have the illusion that yeah. your post is up there. Yeah. Instead of getting 200 likes, you're getting three, you know? Yeah. Uh, that's been going on now for at least a year or two. I, I have a podcast, my own, called uh, Upstream with yeah. Cash and Edge. We had, uh, I, and on YouTube is our primary, primary, we're on the other things, but. Yeah, YouTube. you're on my network too. I have all, I have your shows on my network. Yeah, and thanks for that. And uh, yeah. well, we had one episode pulled because we talked about January 6th. Jeez. And we talked about it. We didn't talk about, it, you know anything extravagant we just talked about it as an injustice and uh, that was enough to get us uh, taken off youtube they put us back on though so but now we've got to watch ourselves a little bit you know that's what they want you to do they want you to watch yourself not too much truth no, that's I why i admire that. people like uh you know even people like megan kelly or uh yeah uh, tucker and uh, these guys uh uh who are 
you know, starting their own thing where they're their own it's their own network. They can control what's going on. Yeah, it's exactly what I did, man. I, I wanted right. to do my own thing, and yeah. I have two networks now, so we're do, we're doing really good. We're doing well, and that's super. And I hope to tell your uh, your listeners to go out and buy Untenable, the true story of white ethnic flight in America City. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And the you know, you talked about your family, how you guys are a lot. A lot of you guys are split on political uh, ideology. What what are what are the encounters like? Because I, I feel it's a problem with a lot of families and a lot of it friends. Is, it is a lot of families, and our basic strategy is to uh, uh, avoid conversation. Here's here's a I'm going to make a sexist remark. Uh oh. Okay, uh, go ahead. You can say whatever you want here. It's all good. This is a safe place. <laughs> you know, I can mix it up with my brother or my nephew, right? Yeah. But the uh, females in the family just they, yeah they yeah, you just can't you don't even want to start right. You too know? much emotion, yeah. And so, for instance, I I said uh, last night we we're sitting at we have like fifty people at dinner. We're big sprawling Damn. picnic tables and stuff. Damn. But at one table was my brother, who, who professes to be a liberal. He's not really, but he's just a contrarian. Right. And um, one a woman who is very much, you know, a liberal. And I said, to Bob, what do you think about the uh, RFK thing? You know, and that's kind of a neutral question to me, you know, because he's a Democrat. And, and she just got up and left the table. Right? So, okay. They simply don't want to hear anything that runs counter to what they think they know. Yeah. And so here's an argument they had a hard time dealing with. I, we had, you know, I try to, I'm very gentle. I never get argumentative or loud. Or, but I said, I just want to give you an example of how you have been misinformed. And I cited a survey of 35,000 people, Gallup survey done in the spring of 2021, a year into the COVID crisis. And I asked them, here's the, and I asked them, uh, this is my one cousin and my brother. I said, uh, what? I'll ask you the question these people were asked. What percentage of people who contracted COVID ended up in the hospital? I said, zero to 5%, five to 20%, 21 to 50%, or 50% or greater. And uh, and so my one cousin said uh, 20 to 50%. And my brother said 5 to 20%. And I said, the right answer is 0 to 5%. I said, however, in this survey of 35,000 people, 41% of Democrats said 50% or better. Another 28% said 20 to 50 so in other words, 69% of Democrats were grossly misinformed about COVID. And that misinformation carried into public policy all across the nation. They were thinking that, you know, it was at least 10 or 20 times more likely that you'd end up in a hospital than you really would. And if you walk into, uh, you're making a policy decision based on that information, it's useless, it's worthless, it's counterproductive. Because what you're saying is based on nothing. And these are people who are dependent on, as my cousin admitted, all she gets her all her news from CNN. So I said, if you watch CNN, that's what you think, you know? So, but they're sweet people. They're nice people. I don't, I don't want to give them a hard time. I don't want to start fights down here, you know? So. And I have to ask you, you know, with the whole COVID thing, um, there are a lot of rumors that there will be more lockdowns, um, more viruses will be coming into 
society uh, that are more that, that apparently are, are going to be even bigger. Um, I'm wondering your thoughts on this. Here's my take on this. They did the experiment. 70% of people bought into it. Right. So why wouldn't they do it again? Why? I mean, no reason not to, except this time, some percentage of that 70%, uh, like the Naomi Wolf faction. Oh, yeah. Right? She's been on my show several times. I love her. Love yeah. her. She's yeah. the best. I love her. Yeah. I mean, I have a big crush on her. Next time you see her, tell her. Uh, yeah. Uh, I have a crush on her. I'm like, I can't go beyond that because I'm she's great. Yeah. Guy, but, uh, I'll, I'll give you, you You got her number. I'll send you over her number. No, 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 I I'll take the number if you got it. Yeah, I'll send it to you, man. You guys, email me a couple Rory, send me email me a few good contacts because I I have a publicist, but there's a a, there's a few shows that really like to crack, you know. Yeah, yeah, get her on your show, man. I've seen your show is like very professional, very well done, very insightful. You guys get to all the topics, man. You guys are the real deal. And my partner is is a hoot. He's very funny, very knowledgeable. Yes, very dark. You know, he considers me the Pollyanna. I'm talking here about uh, Upstream with Cash on Edge. Yeah. I'm also talking, of course, about my book here, uh, right. Untenable, the true story of white ethnic flight from America cities. That's my family, by the way, in the cover. I love I'm it. I'm the guy on uh, the over here on the right, which yeah. is the right. If, I don't know how it shows up on your screen. Yeah. Uh, and, so and it's, Jeff- yeah. Oh, no, go ahead. Keep going. Sorry. I want to. I was going to say it was my favorite book because it's, uh, it was very personal. And it's uh, written as a memoir, as a memoir laced with lots of uh, information, uh, like sustaining documented information about the whole larger phenomenon. I'm not writing about myself so much as uh, me as a spectator on a huge, disastrous experiment, social experiment in American history. Maybe the most comprehensive social experiment that ever took place and uh, and one that no one can admit that it failed because to admit that it failed it would admit that that they screwed up america for generations and what what was it like growing up with with a father that was you, what what was his what was his position in the police force he was a detective in the youth aid bureau right yeah so i you know i had to and I had two older brothers. I mean, yeah. so I felt pretty protected. I, didn't, I wasn't that vulnerable, uh, you know, as, as vulnerable as some people were. Uh, I never worried about our house being broken into. Uh, but my father died when I was 15, and that's part of the story. And then once that happened, then we, and my older brother got married, and now we're, you know, we're as vulnerable as anyone else on our block. And then finally, we, uh, the highway took our home because no one else would have taken it. No one else would have bought it. And we, we moved to a public housing project in Newark. So, uh, you know, we left our home behind, but uh, we didn't leave Newark. My mother left stayed in Newark till the end. If you, if you don't mind me asking, how did your father die? Uh, suicide. It's part of the book. Yeah, my and it's, uh, what's that? Oh, keep, keep going. Sorry. Uh, no, it's part of the story. Uh, and it's, this is the human interest part because he was, uh, he was a great father. I mean, I, I've, yeah. I, it's not many 15-year-olds who could – remember their father only as in positive terms. I have no negative memories. But there was some political upheaval in Newark. Uh, and he was you know, busted, even though he wasn't involved. 
from like a high grade detective to, you know, uniformed front desk guy at a downtown, you know, police station. And also, I mean, just other personal things. And that at that time, if you're uh, in working class families, if your elderly relatives needed taken care of, you had to take care of them. So my my father's mother and his aunt moved into our house. You know, my mother would have been upset if the Blessed Virgin Mary moved in, let alone these two cantankerous old ladies. And then the highways was, they, they let us know they were going to take our house. So my father, who used to find refuge in home repairs and fixing up the house and painting it and doing all those things is pretty handy, was rendered useless because there was no point maintaining a house that they were just going to take regardless. So all those factors kind of combined. And then they all played a part in the undoing of the city. So for me, it was the kind of the ultimate symbol of what happens when when the government messes with people's lives. Yeah, I can relate, man, in regards to losing your father. I lost mine when I was 20 years old, my father. And uh, he was my everything, you know. Uh, you know, my best friend, my soulmate, my mentor. Uh, and coach, right. co coached all my teams. Would always be there whenever I needed anything. And he was very successful. Um, you know, he, he struggled with addiction, though. And uh, it's, yeah. it's tough. It's tough stuff. No, and it's uh, it's why guys like us, when we 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 have to be by ourselves when we watch the final scenes of Field of Dreams, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I'll tell you, Jack. I don't know if it if it's affect if it affected you in, in a lot of ways, but I, I mean, obviously, I, I can imagine it did. But you know, after my dad died, I, I turned to a lot of substance, substances and you know, being very promiscuous you know, trying yeah. to, trying to forget everything, you know, all these right. different ways of trying to numb the pain because it was just, it, it's, it's, it was the worst day of my life, you know? Oh, it was horrible. Yeah. No, I, I didn't, I, I avoided that, but I, you know, I, I will say this to my home repair. And I'm sober now. Thank God. And, and, and thank yeah. the Lord. And I was born and raised Catholic. So went to Catholic grade school and high school. So I'm, I'm very in touch with the Lord. Go to, church, well, you know, every, I, go to church every Sunday. Sorry, go ahead. Here's something I would recommend because after 25 years wandering in my own personal desert, I, I rediscovered the traditional Catholic movement, you know, the Latin Catholic movement. And uh, yeah, I tell you what, you go to our church, which is packed to the gills every Sunday. Average family has six or seven kids. And uh, you will never see an Obama bumper sticker in our parking lot or, or a, a Biden, let alone a Biden bumper sticker. It's it's a hundred percent conservative politically. And Jack, how did it, but after your father died, like how did it affect you? Like what, what ha, did you have any, explain that a little bit. I would say it, its effect was not as, you know, he's a cop. So I used to, you know, you, you I worried about him all the time. Yeah. You know, which cops children do every time I went out at night or did something I had to do on the job. So in a sense, there was a sense of relief. Like I wouldn't have to worry anymore, you know, but I also had two older brothers and I had two uncles in my life. And yeah. so I was pretty stable in that regard. Um, and, you know, it takes time to adapt. And I, I but I'd be, I would be uh, romanticizing his death if I said it, if it, it that it derailed me because it didn't. No, I, I hear you. I hear you. I, I, I got to let you go here in the next few minutes. I, I love yeah. talking to you, though. But did, did, did the job, did the job really stress him out? Do you think that's what kind of led him to that point? No, uh, what stressed him out was this, is that 
Uh, and this is the last great Irish Italian political. Because I can imagine being a, t- a detective and seeing all the stuff that he's probably seen. It's probably very traumatic. Hey, I mean, he had gotten used to that because, and once a year, we'd beg him. Uh, I, you know, my brother's a year older, and he, we'd let him. He'd show us. He said, "Once a year, not before bedtime, the book of like the parade of horrors they have to deal with." There are these books where I guess they do it to acclimate cops to what they're going to see. You know, guys having their heads shot off by shotguns or whatnot. Uh, which, as kids, we were like titillated by. Uh, no, uh, he was undone by uh, the, the dirty politics of a city like Newark. The, these cities, you know, the the left wants us to turn us against black people, white people against black people. Our both our shared enemy was government at city, state, and national levels. It was doing everything it could to both feather its own nest on the on the exploitive side and to elevate their own souls on the uh, idealistic side. The combination of the schemers getting together with the dreamers in a city like Newark was disastrous for everyone who got involved. You know, and I'm going to make the strange recommendation at the end uh, is that the one filmmaker who got this right was um, Steven Spielberg in his new West Side Story remake. I don't know if you saw that, no. but it's a lot smarter than the original. I mean, you could argue the merits otherwise, the music and whatnot, but it's a smarter movie. Uh, and if, if you go see it, you'll see what I mean. But in the interim, though, I would say, I would, you know, this is, I'm getting wonderful reviews from Untenable. Yeah. Someone just reviewed it as a masterpiece, which I, that bust their hearts. <laughs> also, uh, you know, superb, great book, et cetera. I just had to find my audience because it's, I'm carving out a new audience. I can write an Obama book and depend on, the Obama crowd, the anti-Obama crowd to buy books. But this is a special story and it's more heartwarming, more poignant, and yet more uh, as in it's as contemporary as could be because the problem has only gotten worse in the last 60 years. No, no, absolutely. And, and b- before I let you go, you know, you brought up the Obama books. You've written a lot of books about Obama, Barack Obama's promised land, uh, deconstructing Obama, and uh, unmasking Obama. Kind of tell yeah. the audience about those uh, sure. one by one. Say, the two that I would focus on, the, the, the last one was kind of a throwaway. I was going to write it as a book review. And they yeah. said it put it out as a book. But uh, in deconstructing Obama, I, you know, Rory, you know this, but I'm the one who discerned that Bill Ayers had been helping Barack Obama with his memoir, Dreams from My Father. Are you talking about the guy from Weather Underground? Crazy, yeah. crazy yeah. man? Yeah, yeah. And when that when I did that, and that was in real time before the the 2008 election, I had the October surprise in my hands, right? Yeah. And uh, but it was too hot a potato for even our own media. They didn't want to talk about it. Afterwards, everyone said, "Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, right." Well, at the time, it would have sunk his candidacy. Uh, and the deconstructing Obama tells that story. It tells the story of what happens. When you've got that hot potato in your hands a week before, a month before the election. And also about, it talks about uh, the lie that is his book dreams for my father and the lie that is his life. So much of what he wrote was invented. It was really a novel he wrote or helped write, I should say. And the other book, though, that I, I was really liked, personally liked, was Unmasking Obama. Because I had gotten a contract to write an Obama book from a good publisher and and I, I'm thinking, what's the angle about Obama? This is 2019. This is after he's left the White House. And what I decided to do is to sing the praises 
of those people, those independent journalists all across the country, citizen journalists, who unearthed one scandal after another. No scandal in the Obama years came from the top down. New York Times, Washington, but they didn't, they believed it was a scandal-free administration. But the people who broke things like Fast and Furious, the people who broke, uh, you know, like uh, the, uh, all the, uh, the uh, IRS scandal, the, uh, all the scandals that, that befell his administration from beginning to end, Benghazi, et cetera, were broken. All those stories were broken by individuals, in, independent individuals, often working out, all working outside the mainstream. And in each case, it pushed up. They would push it up from the bottom. Someone else might pick it up, like, say, a Cheryl Atkinson from CBS News, as she did with Fast and Furious. Cost her her career, but she had to, she did it. Uh, and there was a, like a dozen stories that I told that sometimes the stories never surfaced into the, uh, into the larger media. A lot of them didn't, but we know about them. For instance, uh, his birth certificate, not his birth certificate, his social security number, which is totally bogus, right? right. I became a good friend with a woman who uh, discovered it, Susan Daniels, and she has her own book out. Um, and the guy who, I mean, there's great stories, like the guy who went through all these tapes and found uh, the Jonathan Gruber tape saying, you know, the only way we could pass Obamacare is counting on the stupidity of the American people, saying this in a public forum, right? All of these stories were found by just individuals, just people like you or your audience or me, you know? Uh, and it's so the, collectively, it's a really good story. It's about, it's a positive story about people doing, you know, really good reporting and never getting the, the, the credit for it they deserve. But um, they they needed to know that other people were paying attention to them. Right. No, right. No, absolutely. Um, I do have to give it to my next guest, but I have to ask you this in regards to what you just mentioned. Um, the birth, you know, while we're talking about this, I want to bring up the whole birth certificate thing. You know, Joe Arpaio is a good friend of mine, longtime family friend, been on my show several times i've worked on on his campaign when i lived in arizona i was at his office about three times a week i adore the man the most genuine the most authentic guy uh he was trump before trump um but he was the first one that really opened the investigation right uh into that whole birth certificate and he had his guys do a bunch of thorough forensic uh, you know, um, investigating and they found that it was a phony. They found that it was fake. They found that it was not real. They found that it was not legitimate. Well, you know what? Uh, I, th I think if you want one takeaway about that. And then remember when Obama said, oh, why do I need to release it? What's the big deal? And he kept holding it off. Right. And then, you know, Arpaio even looked at the one he released and it was doctored. It was not real if you compare it to other birth certificates. And here's what they did. And I talk about this in Unmasking Obama. First of all, you need to know uh, the first lawsuit was brought by a Democrat, uh, uh, Philip Berg, uh, who was a, a former assistant attorney general out of uh, Pennsylvania. He's a serious player. He expected to be taken seriously. He wasn't. Uh, what they did, though, what Obama did in DNC, they sicked a certain law firm on them. You know what law firm they sicked? 
Perkins Cooey. Yeah, right? I was just gonna I was just gonna guess that. Yeah, the most corrupt. The same people who yep. gave us the Steele dossier. Yes. Gave us Obama's birth certificate, and then what they did is this: is that you know there was uh, Trump was giving them a hard time in 2011, and he was causing them problems. And then the Jerry Corsi book was on the verge of coming out. He's been on my show too. I love him. Yeah. Well, what happened is they had an ace in the hole, and this is going to sound conspiratorial, but it's I know it to be true, and uh, Seymour Hirsch would back this up: is they knew where uh, Osama bin Laden was. They could have gotten him any time, right? So the same week, days after they produced the birth certificate, after the Perkins Coie lawyer goes to Hawaii to find the, the birth certificate, uh, they have the raid on uh, Osama bin Laden, right? Or the person we're, we're led to believe is Osama bin Laden. In any case, it was sufficient to make any, any, uh, uh, disbelief, skepticism about the birth certificate seemed trivial and un-American. And that was timed. Bam. Uh, and in, in between that is where uh, Obama goes to the press club, the correspondence dinner, and humiliates or tries to humiliate Donald Trump. These guys were, were diabolical. They had the media in their hands. They could do anything they want. And, and so if they needed to, well, uh, capture bin Laden to take the pressure off the birth certificate, so be it. If, well, and then there's Loretta Fuddy, but that's a story for another day. So, I love it. I love yeah. it. And Jack, tell us um, your upcoming projects. What are you, what are you, what are you directing well, your focus? Right now for? I'm on full uh, mode for uh, selling Untenable or, you know, marketing it. Anyone who uh, is looking for a public speaker or a, a presentation, give me a call. My website is cashel.com, C-A-S-H-I-L-L.com. And I'll have my books and my podcast. And if you want to... Uh, and you can find my podcast on Rory's site as well. Yeah. But if you want to uh, contact me, you can contact me easily through my website. So I'm, you know, and I'm happy to respond to your inquiries. And I know you're, you've done a lot of writing for a lot of big names. Like you did something for James O'Keefe. You've done something. You've done stuff for a lot of people. No, I never talk about that stuff. I, I'm an editor. You know, I edit people's books. You've been in the game a long time, though. I mean, it's quite it's quite impressive the names that you've you know worked with. Yeah, I have. I I you know, for instance, uh, one of the books I did. I, I never talk about this, but uh, publicly, uh, but the, I will talk about one because this guy's got much bigger problems than me revealing that he probably didn't even read his book. Okay. And that was uh, Bill Cosby. Oh wow! I wrote "Come On People," right. Usually, I, you know, when you talk about James O'Keefe or these other guys, I'm really just the editor. I'm the one who tries to keep the the ball between the lines, you know. Right. Uh, but uh, in the Cosby book, I doubt if he read it, right? And this was a book that sold several hundred thousand copies. That uh, when he comes out, right, he gets an hour on Meet the Press, and then he gets an hour on Oprah. Right. This was in his conservative, you know, pull up your pants phase, act like a man phase, you know, and uh, that's part of the reason why he was such fair game uh, when his dirty deeds became public. Uh, no one was there to defend him. He was no O.J. Simpson in that regard. But uh, yeah, I've done about 30 books for 30 people, I'd say. And I do that. Um, happy to do that. I like to do that because I learn a lot. And uh, I've had great relations with all my authors. And g give us a few other names. I won't. <laughs> okay. 
All right. Well, we'll do that. I will say this is that they're all more famous than I am. So there you go. And biggest biggest takeaway you want from this book for people to uh, from this book is I want vindication for those millions of people uh, across the country who've been shamed for the last sixty years for doing the thing any responsible parent, black, white, Hispanic, would do. And I want their children to know what they went through so that you could live in your nice, pleasant suburban lives. Because uh, there is hell to pay on the way to, you know, to, you know, suburbia USA. Yeah, I tell you, and, and how are we going to fix these communities, Jack, to conclude here? How are we going to fix these communities? You know, I think uh, I, I see hope. I mean, here's the hope. Uh, and we may, may have mentioned this earlier, but when New York was averaging 2,500 murders a year in the, uh, around 18, 19, the late 1990s, 1989, 1991, 92, the overwhelmingly liberal city said, we need a Republican. And they elected Rudy Giuliani. Yeah. After eight years of Giuliani and 12 years of Bloomberg, who followed uh, in Giuliani's footsteps when it came to law and order, New York had reduced its homicide rate from 2,500 a year to about 400 a year. They were saving 2,000 lives a year, virtually all of them people of color. And um, no one got credit. For, I mean, I mean, they did get credit at the time, but then now they've had to defame Giuliani for, you know, his uh, role in uh, the election 2020. Uh, that can do. That can happen. Cities like San Francisco, Los Angeles, they've got to sober up and say enough of these woke jerk offs and let's do something right at this time. You know, in Chicago, they're not doing it. They've elected someone a bigger clown than Lori Lightfoot. In San Francisco, they're not doing it. They're not doing it. Eric Adams is better than de Blasio, but he doesn't. He's not getting it. And they got, you know, a, a DA who's, you know, Alvin Bragg, who's just rather put Trump in prison than a murderer. So they've got to get their acts together. They're killing themselves. They're destroying their own cities. Most Republicans live in suburbs and small towns. They really don't care that much. But uh, they like to visit those places, you know. San Francisco is always my favorite city. Been there 20 times. I haven't been in five years. Probably may never go again. Yeah. In San Francisco, they've closed like 30, 30 store, over 30 big stores in the last year and a half. I mean, they yeah. are, they're, done. they're done. I mean, everybody that is an expert on San Francisco said they'll never be the same. It's not coming back. Not the way it was, uh, but it's and, and the two, some of the, like two of the nicest hotels closed too. Huh? Uh, yeah, I've, I've stayed in them. I that that's heartbreaking, it really is. And the ones that are open are filling them with it, you know, illegal immigrants, and whatnot. So. It's crazy, man. I'll tell you, California needs to be saved. And I'll tell yeah. you, there's more Republicans in this state than people think. We just need proper leadership. We need to go back to, you know, the Reagan the Reagan times of uh, of governorship, or even yeah. Arnold, even Arnold. I mean, he he wasn't he wasn't great. But he was okay. He's better. He's better than freaking Newsom. Yeah, he wasn't horrible, uh, and he had a good. He had a good intentions. They co-opted him, of course, but that happens. So, hey, Rory, thanks though for having me. A absolutely. Great. And website again, where people can find you. Uh, Cashel.com, C-A-S-H-I-L-L.com, and it's a final pitch for Untenable, the true story of white ethnic flight from America's cities. Excellent, my friend. Well, we will talk to you very soon. And uh, we'll be right back, everybody, coming to you live from Paul.
Palm Springs, California. This is Rory Sutter and the news. Thanks, Jay. No, I appreciate it. Anytime, Rory. I'm Mike Lindell, and I'm excited to announce my new product, My Coffee. I get products all the time from entrepreneurs for my new platform, MyStore.com. And when I tried my coffee for the first time, I was blown away. It is the best coffee I've ever had in my life. I spent the last four months doing my due diligence, and this family-owned business micromanages every step from the fields to the cup to ensure the best quality coffee you're ever going to have. It starts with the beans that are grown in Honduras. Honduras's volcanic soil and humid climate make the perfect growing conditions for coffee plants, which produce the best beans ever. Then each batch is tested for its aroma, taste, and other aspects to meet the highest standards in the coffee industry. And after that, it goes into production, which is all done right here in the USA. It's like you're getting that small batch specialty coffee, but delivered right to your front door. So go to mystore.com or call the number on your screen. Use the promo code and you'll get your very own My Coffee for 25% off. You guys all know that I've traveled the country for the past year and a half. I've stayed in hundreds of hotels. I've tried every coffee out there. Well, some of the coffees have that terrible aftertaste, some that leave me jittery, or I get an upset stomach. Well, my coffee is different. It's the richest, smoothest, best coffee I've ever had. My coffee comes in a variety of flavors. You get them ground or whole bean, plus it's certified organic and non-GMO. I guarantee it'll be the best coffee you've ever had. So go to mystore.com or call the number on your screen. Use your promo code and you'll get my coffee for 25% off. And I'm going to give you deep discounts on all my store products. That's mystore.com. It's my new platform for USA entrepreneurs. Please order now. Looks like you've been sleeping well. Megan, he's back. The My Pillow guy. And you're looking good. He's still feeling good. Well, just when you thought it couldn't get any better, we've got the best pillow ever. My Pillow 2.0. <gasps> wow, it's so soft and smooth. It's cool to the touch. How did you do that? Well, we took My Pillow's patented bill and combined it with this new technology that we didn't have back then when I invented My Pillow to bring you the best pillow in history, MyPillow 2.0. Just like all of you, I never imagined that MyPillow could get any better. That's why I haven't changed it in nearly 20 years. Then I heard about a revolutionary new technology and I knew I had to bring it to you all. MyPillow 2.0 is truly the next generation of MyPillow. The MyPillow 2.0 is cooler and softer than the last MyPillow. It is so comfortable to sleep on at night. I look forward to going to bed and I wake up well rested in the morning. Sleep is all about temperature and height. MyPillow 2.0's patented adjustable fill is gonna give you the exact individual support you need from your head to your bed. And now here's where it gets even better. We've all experienced those temperature-related sleep interruptions where you get too hot, you toss and turn, you flip your pillow over to the cool side, well, all that's gone with my brand new MyPillow 2.0 cooling fabric that's made with temperature-regulating thread. 
The best sleep just got even better. Whether you have a MyPillow or not, you need to get the brand new MyPillow 2.0. Call or go to MyPillow.com now. Use your promo code, and for a limited time, when you buy one, you'll get a second one absolutely free. You're sleeping even better. And cooler, too. And you're looking good. Feeling good. I knew you would. Visit MyPillow.com. has been a tough year. Our sales are down, our growth is down. Sonny, I brought you in here to grow the basketball business. People don't know what the hell a Nike is. What's a Converse? NBA All-Star shoe. There's nothing cool about Nike. You would have to have a pretty compelling pitch. I can tell them the one thing the other companies can't compete with. Our basketball division is terrible. I do not love it. This is where you come up with a brilliant idea that no one else can see. Let's hear it. I got it. I found him. Who's that? Jesus? Can't afford it. I'm willing to bet my career on one guy. My name's Sonny Vaccaro. I'm with Nike. Do you typically make it a habit of showing up at people's front doors unannounced? I don't like to take no for an answer. Oh, man. Here we go. You ask me what I do here. This is what I do. I find you players, and I feel it this time. Okay, it's risky. When you were selling sneakers out of the back of your Plymouth, that was risky. Don't change that now. For a rookie? Yes. Who's never set foot on an NBA court. That's the literal definition of rookie, yeah. What's the plan? We build a shoe line around just him. I need the greatest basketball shoe that's ever been made. Who's the player? Michael Jordan. You'll motor it. I believe in your son. I believe he's the future. And his story is going to make us want to fly. But a shoe is just a shoe. Until my son steps into it. Got a name for it? Air Jordan. I don't know. Seriously? Maybe it'll grow on me. Mr. Renfield, welcome. I am Dracula. You will make a very good assistant. No, he's evil. We will protect you. You have the word of the most trusted institution on Earth, the Catholic Church. Your sole purpose in life is to serve me. Now, let's eat. I just want a normal life again. No, 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 no. God bless you, Mr. Renfield. Oh, God bless you, nun. You're a hero. Well, but Montague Renfield. Let me explain. I work for Dracula. Count Dracula? It's the real fucking Dracula! Some call me the Dark One. 
father is the lord of death. <laughs> so you bring in people to eat? Well, I do other stuff. Like what? Wash his cape? The cape is dry clean only, strictly. Yeah, I'm aware of this shit. This fly, yeah. Look, I don't think he's such a bad guy. But you're never really gonna be free until you face him. I will no longer tolerate abuse. <laughs> I deserve happiness. Let me explain something to you, okay? You deserve only suffering. I will unleash an army of death. Everyone you care about will suffer because you betrayed me. We have to stop him before sunset. I am enough. I deserve happiness. And I take full charge of my life. something crazy happens and someone's like it's okay i've seen way worse everything i saw you do today is gonna be my way worse it's my least favorite part of the job Just like that, a moment turns romantic. So why pause to take a pill? And when you're having fun, why stop to find a bathroom? With Cialis for daily use, you don't have to plan around either. It's the only daily tablet approved to treat erectile dysfunction, so you can be ready anytime the moment is right. Plus, Cialis treats the frustrating urinary symptoms of BPH, like needing to go frequently, day or night. Tell your doctor about all your medical conditions and medicines and ask if your heart is healthy enough for sex. Do not take Cialis if you take nitrates for chest pain or a dempus for pulmonary hypertension, as it may cause an unsafe drop in blood pressure. Do not drink alcohol in excess. Side effects may include headache, upset stomach, delayed backache, or muscle ache. To avoid long-term injury, get medical help right away for an erection lasting more than four hours. If you have any sudden decrease or loss in hearing or vision, or any symptoms of an allergic reaction, stop taking Cialis and get medical help right away. Why pause the moment? Ask your doctor about Cialis for daily use. And for a $200 savings card, go to Cialis.com. And we are back, coming to you live from Palm Springs, California. This is Rory Sodder and the news. My next guest is Susan Daniels. Uh, Susan, thank you for joining us. Uh, can you hear me okay? I Yes, I can. Perfect. It's, a, it's great to have you here. Your first time on. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Give us a bio, a background, how it all started for you. Seems like it's been quite the adventure. You've lived quite the life and uh, have achieved quite a bit. Yeah, well, I'm 82 years old. Well, I you don't a... look it. You look fantastic, I must say. You're the best looking 82-year-old I've ever seen. So <laughs> good genetics, good genetics. Um, I've been a licensed private investigator for 30 years now. And uh, in 2009, somebody... Uh, one of my clients contacted me and asked me to do a background on Barack Obama. Oh, wow. He was already asked the president. And I said, well, I don't think I'm going to find anything. And I said, but I'll try. And I immediately found, uh, went to one of my databases and found that he had a Connecticut social security number. 
Now, there's no way that he could have a Connecticut number because it said it was issued in 1977. And uh, Social Security numbers are issued to the address where you live when you apply for it, not necessarily the state you were born in. And I, I recognize it immediately because I've, I've looked at thousands of numbers. Uh, the numbers start in, in the low numbers in uh, on the East Coast and they get higher as you go toward the West Coast. Um, uh, Hawaii's numbers would start with 575 or 576. His started with 042 and it should never have been that way. Well, then that was all it took for me to get started then. And, I, uh, I started ha having, you know, stories were starting to be written about it. Um, of course, everybody said to me, well, uh, you know, if, it, if you were right, the FBI would know about it, and, which is really laughable now because we know what the FBI is all about. And uh, in 2012, I filed a lawsuit against the Ohio Secretary of State trying to get Barack Obama off the Ohio ballot, the presidential ballot. And of course I was not successful. Well then eventually uh, somebody convinced me I should write a book because I, I have had an interesting life. Um, I was married to a, a, a man who owned a rubbish hauling company, thus the name of the book. And he was murdered when I was 30 years old I had seven children, the oldest was 10, and was then left to my own devices. Uh, he, his company was huge, but the lawyers managed, he died without a will, so the lawyers kept it in probate court for seven and a half years while they took money. And, and my kids and I, not so much. So, and, so then, then I wrote the book, I thought, well, let's write it. And then let's tell people about Barack Obama, because what I fear is that Michelle will be the next candidate. And having a social security number that's illegal is a felony, and we don't need a felon back in the White House. Wow. A lot to, <laughs> a lot, a lot to unpack here. Um, <laughs> first off, if you don't mind me asking, how was your husband murdered? He was killed by, uh, uh, it was it had to do with the rubbish hauling business. He, he would not get involved with the bad guys trying to interrupt or intrude on the business. He wouldn't, he would not, he, he would not get involved with them. And they hired somebody and it, he, the person was uh, actually found, you know, that he was acquitted. He said, it, they said it was self-defense. But it was not. He had been threatened for months before he died that he was going to get killed. Wait, so this was like a planned, this guy had a planned attack? Uh, yeah. All set up like a premeditated scenario? and. Yep. Yep. Wow. And like, how, how, how did, like, what's the story you heard that went down? Well, the story was that um, this guy named Danny Green, who was a well-known gangster in Cleveland, was running- Ma Gangster meaning ma mafia type? Uh, tangentially. Okay. Uh, yeah, associated with them. Okay. Um, he- Ital Italian, Italian guy? No, he was Irish. Oh, wow, okay. You know, uh, 
just like me and um, yeah i'm irish too yeah <laughs> well i think he was i think he was surprised he did go to try he was charged and went to went to trial but the uh judge directed the verdict and took it away from the jury it turned out later that danny green had for years been an fbi uh, confidential informant and that's why that's why he walked away so wait, what what business was your husband overseeing? What where he what, owned he owned a large rubbish hauling company. Oh yeah, rubbish hauling. I think you mentioned that earlier. Yeah. So were they were a bunch of people targeting his business? Was he a, was he No, no. This was strictly this was strictly a personal personal vendetta. From what did the did this did these two have a past or something? Oh yeah, they knew each other for years. In fact, they were friends for years. Um, one of my sons was named after him. And what caused the falling out? Like what, what, there must've been like one incident that really yeah, set them off. Well, what happened is that they, the rubbish haulers, my husband had the third largest rubbish hauling company in Cleveland. Wow. And what they, what the problem is that the companies were running into was that uh, small haulers, one truck guys, would go around, cut prices, and then take rubbish and dump it anywhere. And uh, they wanted to set up that. And this guy says, well, I can help with that, the standing green. So they, they, they form a, 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 you know, a, some kind of a, a group of, of rubbish haulers. They all joined. Uh, I think the way it worked, I'm trying to remember, I think he was going to get paid $25 per truck per month from each of the haulers that belong. Well, the largest company had like 17 trucks. The next one probably had 13 or 14. I think my husband had seven at the time. And then there were a bunch of other companies involved. Well, he started using some of his, his gangster-like tactics. Like all of a sudden there were truck fires of these independent haulers and things. And my husband said, I don't want any part of this. And he dropped out. And when he dropped out of the of this uh, organization, the other two large companies immediately dropped out and the money stopped then. And Danny Green did not like that. And that's when the threat started. It was all how long did the oh go ahead, keep on. Pardon me? Oh, keep going. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I'm I'm sorry. That, yeah, that that's where it all began. And how long were the threats taking place before he actually oh, probably, went and attacked? Probably uh, four or five, six months. Oh, okay. A long time. And this was this was what year? 1971. And how old was your husband when he died? 37. Oh, my God. It's been, wow. Does it still kind of seem like yesterday? No, because it's been, it's been so long. You know, the worst part was, um, and I had kept I had kept a secret from my family, from my friends, from everybody. My husband had a second family, and he had five children with another woman, and I had never told anybody. And that all came out when he died, and everybody was shocked, including my own children. And it was not a happy time. Oh my. God, how did you handle that, Susan? I, you know, Good Lord, you... double life? Good Lord. Yeah, you just, you, you know, if you don't have choices in life, it's really easy. You just, you just keep going. 
Uh, you know, did you find a way to keep going? And then, okay, so let me get this straight. You didn't find that out until after he died? Oh, no, I knew all along. So. I had even left him a couple of times because of it. And he kept, he'd always come and ask me to come back. Oh, so he, so he, so you forgave him a few times and. Oh, yeah. And then, event, and then eventually you were just done. No, I just, I, I had seven children. Where was I going to go? You know, I just, I resolved myself to the fact that this is what it is and I have to put up with it. And your children, so your children didn't find out till after he died, right? Right, right. When it was they, all over did, TV and all over the newspapers and it was bad. So what was their reaction? I can only imagine. Well, my oldest daughter said to me, I am so disappointed in you. I never thought you'd do something like this. You know, get involved in something like that. It was a mess. Oh, my God. It was a real mess. However, I uh, slugged my way through it. Um, he, it turns out he, although I didn't get money from the company, he had left a small insurance policy in my name that I didn't know about, like $15,000. And I bought, I put that down on a uh, coin-operated laundromat because that was the ideal business to be in. It was one that I didn't need to be at all the time. Um, somebody helped me find a, a laundromat and I had that until I uh, started college. And then I, so then I went to college. I, I ended up, I got two degrees. Then I got certified as a paralegal and then I got licensed as a private investigator and all the while working or and going to school and raising my kids. Did you have any sort of interaction or any sort of friendship with the other side? Did you ever try to? No, but my, my some of my kids do. And I don't I I just never had a problem with the kids. They right. they were they're innocent of the whole mess. Not nice, kid, nice kids, though. Oh, yeah. Nice kids and their kids are, are nice kids like mine. And mine, I had no trouble with police, you know, drugs, alcohol. I'd, I had no problems with my kids. They they all grew up to be good kids. Uh, the, my grandchildren are great. My great-grandchildren are great. Um, and the other family, same thing. I, she, one of her uh, grandchildren's a police officer, one's a doctor. I mean, everybody, everybody did well, you know, considering where we all started. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. And, you know, talking about this private investigator stuff, you've been a private investigator for 30 years. Right. Have you, you've probably looked at so many different cases. Like what, what is your typical case? I mean, what? Well, it, it, it used to be uh, that I, I did about 90% of my work was with law firms. And that has now completely flipped around. And now, you know, work now for private investigators is is, to, is very bad. It's very, very slow. Um, that was the only reason I had time to write a book is because I had so little work to do, but I had to, I had to keep doing something. What's the, what's the most outrageous, most craziest case you've ever... I'll tell you one of the best ones I had yeah. Uh, and this was really good. The, the, the result was really good. 
I was hired by um, a Jag, uh, Jag lawyer in, um, where the heck was it? Um, I can't think of the name of the fort right now. And I, and it was in North or South Carolina, but it was a Marine base. And a, a young Marine was accused of a female Marine of rape. And she was from this area. So I was hired to go try and do a background on her. And uh, so I went and the first thing I did is I went to the library and got the yearbook, pulled names out of kids that were in her class, uh, interviewed neighbors, called people in her class, mostly males, because they're the only ones that, you know, the women, you didn't know if they changed their names or not. But I probably interviewed six or eight of them, uh, had, got, had done quite a bit of work. Uh, a really funny thing happened is I left uh, one of my cards in the mailbox of her stepmother. And um, uh, I, I always do that. I leave the card, but I don't tell people what I want. I just say, please call me. And um, she called. She says, I know what you want. And I'm just calling to tell you I'm not talking to you. <laughs> and hung up on me. <laughs> what an idiot. But anyhow, uh, he, he got off. She was lying. And, and we all knew it. And that Marine was facing 30 years in jail. Good Lord. Yeah, Camp Lejeune. That's what it was. I knew I'd think of it eventually. Wow. So I do have to ask you this. So as a private investigator. Yeah. Like, give us kind of the rundown of the different steps you take. You know, what the routine is, what the curriculum in regards to cracking the codes and, you know, just like what, what is your process? And well, I, uh, because I, I have access to proprietary databases because yeah. I'm licensed by the state right. and which means that I can access things that you couldn't access or anybody else. But the way you always, you always start trying to find a social security number. That's always step one. Because that is that will lead you everywhere you want to go. Because at the same time you find out what the social security number is, you get the date of birth also. And then you you go from there. And you do, you know, I can honestly say I've never in 30 years, I've never done anything that was, you know, questionable, illegal. I I, I it's not necessary. I know there's some bad private investigators out there. But that's not the way I ever operated, you know. Um, and then you you just go. You go in every direction you can. The irony is, if whether it's civil or a criminal investigation, you do it the same way. Because the idea is to find the truth. And the, if the lawyers don't like what you find, that's too bad. Because that's what they're going to get from me. Have you ever... Um... Have you ever had had an issue with finding a social security number? Um, not that I can recall. So you always find them nice. So and then then once you get that, it oh, it's, it's you know, then Katie barred the door. It's you know, you find you just, you find everything. Amazing. You know, with the with the Obamas, I only found. Um, I didn't really look for her at her. I mean, I found her number right away when I found his, but uh, I didn't bother with her because um, I was interested in him. 
so I mean, I knew I had all the addresses where they had lived and, uh, and he had one cell phone number. And uh, it was interesting because the cell phone numbers would say, uh, have with them date of birth. And the, uh, the social security number that he was using was uh, originally assigned to a woman who, who, lived, who was born in 1890. And um, every so often his date of birth would come up 1890 on these cell phone records. And Susan, don't you think he's running the show in the White House right now? Don't you think he's controlling Biden like a puppet? No, I don't think he's that smart. I think it's people like uh, Valerie Jarrett and Susan Rice and and Victoria Newland and 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 on a greater scheme, people like Klaus Schwab. What it, you know after all your investigations, what do you think is the most corrupt thing about about him? I mean, obviously there's a million things, but what do you think the worst thing is? That he's he's just such a degenerate. When I see when I see him with videos with these mauling these little kids, it makes me crazy. No, I'm talking about no Obama. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought we were talking yeah, about after, for some after, reason. After I, concluding oh, your investigation, the, the just thing the about Obama is he's a liar. He's a pathological liar. He's told nothing about uh, his entire life is a, is a lie. Um, I believe, and I have in my book. I believe that I figured out where he was actually born, and it was not Hawaii, because neither of the hospitals he could have been born at will, will uh, accept him as, as having been born there. Um, I found a letter in his father's immigration file, and not that I think Obama Sr. was actually his father, because I don't, but I found in his immigration file, I found a letter that said... Um, that, he, that they, his wife was pregnant, although they were never married, that his wife was pregnant and she was contacting the Salvation Army to give the baby up for adoption. Now, uh, since nobody saw her in Hawaii when she was pregnant the whole time, I knew that the only place she could have gone would have been back to Seattle where she came from a, a year earlier. And I started looking for, for uh, hospitals, for maternity hospitals from the Salvation Army and found one just 160 miles from where she grew up on Mercer Island in Washington. Yeah. And I'm, I from, think I'm in, from Seattle, so I know, I know it all very well. Okay. Well, I, I, li I live in Palm Springs, California now, but I'm originally from Seattle. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, in in Vancouver, British Columbia, there's love a it. I live I live there for three. I live there for about four years. I love that place too. Uh, on Oak Street in in Vancouver was it was called Maywood uh, Home for Girls, and I believe that that's where she had this baby. But what what went wrong is um, they tested the baby's blood. They wanted to make sure that they were only giving white babies out for adoption. They didn't, people did not want mixed race children. And that included, I knew it. And I think that's what the, uh, what the intention was. But I think that when he showed up as biracial, I, I think they said, this is your baby. Good luck. Because two weeks later, she showed up on Mercer Island with, with a brand new baby.
And I have to ask you this. Do you remember the whole Larry Sinclair story? Oh, yeah. Oh, of course. I mean, do you, you don't you think Obama's gay? I mean, don't you think it's... Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I saw last week he was, uh, he was criticizing librarians for banning books. Right. And somebody in one of the comments says, how does he feel about Larry Sinclair's book? Right. Exactly. Does he want that banned? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And there's so many stories about Obama, you know, being gay. And there's a lot of people that have come out and said, you know, they met. There's a lot of men that have come out and said that they had sexual interactions with him. Oh, yeah. And, and we've never seen any other presidents have men come out with accusations. No. No, and you don't see any women coming out saying I dated him. Right, right. And that that's that's very suspicious. It's very suspicious, Susan. <laughs> you think? Yeah, I mean it, it, it's it's quite something. And I, I mean, do you think do you think that he was, you know, I mean, do you think he was destined to be president? Do you think it was inevitable? No, he's the Manchurian. He really is the Manchurian candidate. He, if, if he was born in Vancouver, like I believe he was, he's never been a U.S. citizen. Oh, you don't think he was born in Kenya? Oh, absolutely not. I'm saying he was born in Vancouver. Really? Yeah, in a home for unwed girls. He was raised by his white mama and white grandma. Um, uh, his mother had him only for a very short time. She had him for the first year, and then she she dumped him, and then she had him from age 6 to 10 when she was in Indonesia, and then sent him back to her grandparents, or to her parents, his grandparents. He, he cannot relate to black people and doesn't like white people, I don't believe. Right, I mean, he, and he talks like he can relate to the inner cities the only thing he, he wants from blacks is their vote yeah i mean and the only you know what i will say this he is a very good speaker and that's the he's reason. a very good reader yeah and he can and he can trick people and he's slick and he can woo a crowd right. and really really make them feel special right. in the way he speaks um did you i, I have to him? give him that i mean i can't stand the guy but the speaking he, uh, he, he has that he, down. He's good at reading a teleprompter. Did you ever hear him try to put a sentence together that wasn't written down? He can't. No, I'm, do talking it. About the, I'm talking about the teleprompter. He is good at that. Oh, he's excellent at that. He, yeah. He he has he's got the cadence right. He's got the moves right. He's got it all down. Yeah. yeah it's... But he, I don't think he. You know, I I don't believe that. Well, I know he he never went to uh, Columbia. I interviewed a teacher that taught there for 46 years, and he said he, he was never a student there. I do, I do, I do have to ask you, um, before I let you go, and I want to get you back on here soon because I want to talk to you more, but all right, what are you working on now? Do you have any new new cases you're working on? Uh, no, I'm, I'm thinking about, I'm toying with the idea of doing another book and one strictly of all the different cases I've done over the last 30 years, because there have been some really, really interesting ones. There have been some really sad ones. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of toying with that. I might I might do that. Do you have any books? Uh, pardon me? Do you have any books? Uh, just, just this one. 
I love it. I love it. And what's the biggest takeaway you want people to get from that? I want them to learn about what a phony Obama is and how we don't need him or his wife, who is equally bad as him, anywhere near the White House. And if she is the candidate, we have to do everything we can to stop her from getting elected. And how long did it take you to write this book? It took me about about eight months. Um, a lot of a lot of research went into it, and um, and it, not only that, it's difficult going back as you would imagine. You go back over your life over the things that are so unpleasant. Um, it's tough. You know, and I, I'd be writing something and then I'd, for a couple of days, I'd, I'd just leave it alone because I didn't want to think about it anymore. But, you know, the only way you get something done is to keep at it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's 100 percent, you know, and um, I, 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 I admire everything you're doing. Keep up the good work and well, thank uh, you. tell everybody where they can find you and get involved. Um, they, they, they can find my book. Only at Amazon.com. Perfect. Perfect. And uh, I don't, I, I don't know if you know Joel Gilbert. The uh, I do. He's been on my show a couple times. Joel did the the cover of my book for me. Oh wow! Yeah. Joel, Joel and I have been friends for years, and he did the cover of the book. And it was a writer named Jack Cashel that convinced me to write a book. Oh my God! He was he was just right on right before you. Well, he and I have been friends. He tracked me down in 2011. He called me and he said, everybody keeps talking about this Connecticut social security number. And he said, all roads lead to you. Are you the one that actually found it? And I said, yep. And, and Susan, you know, um, Joe Arpaio has been on my show several times. And uh, he's a good family friend of mine. I've known him for a long time. And uh, as you know, he's the one that opened the investigation. He was the right. first one to talk about the birth certificate and how it was a phony. And he had his guys look at this very thoroughly, you know, forensics, all that stuff. And they knew it was doctored. They knew they, they said this is a total, total phony. Oh yeah. Well, there was no, uh, although there was a stamp on it, there was no imprint from a notary stamp and there should have been. And that was the first thing I noticed being a notary myself. Now, they don't use those kinds of stamps anymore, but they would have when, when he got that uh, document. Yeah. yeah. And, and they had his race of his father as African, and African is not a race. In 1961, the only thing that the Census Bureau would have accepted would have been uh, Negro. Right, right. Right. Um, Susan, thank you for coming on. Let's talk very soon. Uh, we're going to be right back, everybody, with Wayne Black. Wayne Black will be with us. Uh, Susan, thank you. Thank you. All right. Coming to you live from Palm Springs, California, Rory Sauter and the News. We'll be right back, everybody. I'm Mike Lindell, and I'm excited to announce my new product, My Coffee. I get products all the time from entrepreneurs for my new platform, mystore.com. And when I tried my coffee for the first time, I was blown away. It is the best coffee I've ever had in my life. I spent the last four months doing my due diligence, and this family-owned business micromanages every step 
from the fields to the cup to ensure the best quality coffee you're ever going to have. It starts with the beans that are grown in Honduras. Honduras's volcanic soil and humid climate make the perfect growing conditions for coffee plants, which produce the best beans ever. Then each batch is tested for its aroma, taste, and other aspects to meet the highest standards in the coffee industry. And after that, it goes into production, which is all done right here in the USA. It's like you're getting that small batch specialty coffee, but delivered right to your front door. So go to mystore.com or call the number on your screen. Use the promo code and you'll get your very own My Coffee for 25% off. You guys all know that I've traveled the country for the past year and a half. I've stayed in hundreds of hotels. I've tried every coffee out there. Well, some of the coffees have that terrible aftertaste, some that leave me jittery or I get an upset stomach. Well, my coffee is different. It's the richest, smoothest, best coffee I've ever had. My coffee comes in a variety of flavors. You get them ground or whole bean, plus it's certified organic and non-GMO. I guarantee it'll be the best coffee you've ever had. So go to mystore.com or call the number on your screen. Use your promo code and you'll get my coffee for 25% off. And I'm going to give you deep discounts on all my store products. That's mystore.com. It's my new platform for USA entrepreneurs. Please order now. Looks like you've been sleeping well. Megan, he's back, the My Pillow guy. And you're looking good. I'm still feeling good. Well, just when you thought it couldn't get any better, we've got the best pillow ever, My Pillow 2.0. Wow, it's so soft and smooth. It's cool to the touch. How did you do that? Well, we took My Pillow's patented bill and combined it with this new technology that we didn't have back then when I invented My Pillow to bring you the best pillow in history, MyPillow 2.0. Just like all of you, I never imagined that MyPillow could get any better. That's why I haven't changed it in nearly 20 years. Then I heard about a revolutionary new technology and I knew I had to bring it to you all. MyPillow 2.0 is truly the next generation of MyPillow. The MyPillow 2.0 is cooler and softer than the last MyPillow. It is so comfortable to sleep on at night. I look forward to going to bed and I wake up well rested in the morning. Sleep is all about temperature and height. MyPillow 2.0's patented adjustable fill is gonna give you the exact individual support you need from your head to your bed. And now here's where it gets even better. We've all experienced those temperature-related sleep interruptions where you get too hot, you toss and turn, you flip your pillow over to the cool side, well, all that's gone with my brand new MyPillow 2.0 cooling fabric that's made with temperature-regulating thread. 
The best sleep just got even better. Whether you have a MyPillow or not, you need to get the brand new MyPillow 2.0. Call or go to MyPillow.com now. Use your promo code, and for a limited time, when you buy one, you'll get a second one absolutely free. You're sleeping even better. And cooler, too. And you're looking good. Feeling good. I knew you would. Visit MyPillow.com. Just like that, a moment turns romantic. So why pause to take a pill? And when you're having fun, why stop to find a bathroom? With Cialis for daily use, you don't have to plan around either. It's the only daily tablet approved to treat erectile dysfunction, so you can be ready anytime the moment is right. Plus, Cialis treats the frustrating urinary symptoms of BPH, like needing to go frequently, day or night. Tell your doctor about all your medical conditions and medicines and ask if your heart is healthy enough for sex. Do not take Cialis if you take nitrates for chest pain or a depus for pulmonary hypertension, as it may cause an unsafe drop in blood pressure. Do not drink alcohol in excess. Side effects may include headache, upset stomach, delayed backache, or muscle ache. To avoid long-term injury, get medical help right away for an erection lasting more than four hours. If you have any sudden decrease or loss in hearing or vision, or any symptoms of an allergic reaction, stop taking Cialis and get medical help right away. Why pause the moment? Ask your doctor about Cialis for daily use. And for a $200 savings card, go to Cialis.com. 84 has been a tough year. Our sales are down, our growth is down. Sonny, I brought you in here to grow the basketball business. People don't know what the hell a Nike is. What's a Converse? NBA All-Star shoe. There's nothing cool about Nike. You would have to have a pretty compelling pitch. I can tell them the one thing the other companies can't compete with. Our basketball division is terrible. I do not love it. This is where you come up with a brilliant idea that no one else can see. Let's hear it. I got it. I found him. Who's that? Jesus? Can't afford it. I'm willing to bet my career on one guy. My name's Sonny Vaccaro. I'm with Nike. Do you typically make it a habit of showing up at people's front doors unannounced? I don't like to take no for an answer. Oh, man. Here we go. You ask me what I do here. This is what I do. I find you players, and I feel it this time. Okay, it's risky. When you were selling sneakers out of the back of your Plymouth, that was risky. Don't change that now. For a rookie? Yes. Who's never set foot on an NBA court. That's the literal definition of rookie. Yeah. What's the plan? We build a shoe line around just him. I need the greatest basketball shoe that's ever been made. Who's the player? Michael Jordan. You're motoring. I believe in your son. I believe he's the future. And his story is gonna make us want to fly. But a shoe is just a shoe. Until my son steps into it. Got a name for it? Air Jordan. I don't know. Seriously? Maybe it'll grow on me. And we are back. Rory Sodder and the news coming to you live. 
from Palm Springs, California. I do want to introduce my next guest, who I'm really excited to have on. He's had a hell of a career, uh, a very impressive resume. It's been quite the journey for him. We have Wayne Black with us. Wayne, thank you for joining the show, man. Your first time on. Give us a bio, a background, how it all started for you, all that fun stuff. Well, Rory, thanks uh, for having me. Good to be here. Thank started you. as a police officer, Miami-Dade Police Department. Um, I was then at Janet Reno's Organized Crime Division, uh, went out private. 9-11 um, happened. I got a uh, chance with a with Homeland Security to run a red team. That's a classified program where our team tried to break into facilities and uh, test the security, and that's sort of how it, how it started. Um, after the Bush 43 administration, I protected Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld for the next 10 years until his death. Uh, that was probably the honor of my life. Um, and I've, I've had my, my shop ever since then. And, and uh, I remember he and I used to talk about what happened at Columbine. And I was always thinking about that. And so I've been doing assessments at schools for the past probably seven or eight years around the country. And uh, what triggered me to write the book, Rory, was what happened in Virginia, Loudoun County, when I saw that parent arrested for complaining that his, his child was sexually abused. So yeah. I, wrote this, I wrote this book for parents and grandparents and even educators um, about school insecurity. That's the name of the book. And what they could do. And my assessment checklist is actually in the book. Very, ni very nice, man. And I, I got to ask you. You know, when you were, um, when you were the supervisor for State Attorney Janet Reno, kind of talk about your day-to-day -day duties, like your operations, how that all went down. That's a big. That's a big position. Well, yeah, I was a, a law enforcement group supervisor, and so we were proactive and reactive. Proactive meaning we we looked for uh, corruption cases involving police officers, judges, public officials, yeah. and re and reactive we reacted to um, things that, that were within our jurisdiction. So it was a it was a great opportunity. Did you ever meet Janet Reno? Oh, of course, a bunch. I reported to her um, and uh, spent a lot of time with her, especially during the Miami riots. Yeah, the reason I ask, because there's a lot of people that work for certain, for these high up individuals, and sometimes they don't really have <clears throat> much interactions with them. But what was she like? You know, kind of describe her because, you know, she gets a bad rap from various people. I mean, you know, everybody has their own opinion. Well, she was hands on. That's for sure. She wanted to know, especially uh, the, with high profile cases. Yeah. Um, she always wanted briefings and she had this little book. This is a, a, a funny story about her that anybody knows that's worked for her. She had this little notebook yeah. and she would keep the pending cases in the notebook. And so she would flip it open and call you and say, well, so what's happening on this since the last time you briefed me? And uh, there was always talk around the office, somebody ought to do away with the notebook. But that, of course, that never happened. That was that was a joke. Um, she was uncorruptible, um, just super nice, um, really concerned about crimes against children, um, corruption, things like that. So it was a it was a pleasure to work with her. And I do have to ask you, did you ever meet Bill Clinton? Because that's who appointed her. Do you ever spend time with him? No, I never did. I, I never did. Okay. And so, like, um, 
Wait, how how long did you say you worked for her for? I was with her in Miami uh, for about four years. Oh, wow. Very interesting. Very interesting. And, you know, that sort of job when you were, you know, and looking at various corruption, I mean, what's the worst case that you came across? Well, I don't know. As I think back, Roy, there, there are a bunch of cases. Um, our office charged the superintendent of schools for taking uh, kickbacks. Um, some judges, um, a bunch of police officers that uh, went on the other side of the law um, and uh, were selling drugs. But look, it's Miami, you know, so, so anything can happen. We always said that in some ways, uh, corruption is like the sand in the soil. You can put topsoil on it, but the rains always wash it away. Yeah, and Miami. I mean, back in back in those days, it was it was high crime. It was high crime. There was a lot of stuff going on. I mean, and it sounds like you dealt with <clears throat> everything, you know, all over the board. Whether it was street crime, whether it was financial crime, you know. I mean, is that fair to say? Well, the police. There are great police departments in Miami. Miami Police and the and the Dade Public Safety Department, now called Metro Dade Police. They dealt pretty much with street crime. Our, our uh, focus was on organized crime. There was a financial division in the office that handled financial crime. So uh, it was even then, uh, it was a big office. And speaking of organized crime, did you take down the mob ever? Anybody in that sort of organ, you know, group? Um, because in Florida, they do have a big presence. Well, you know, there was an, most people don't know this or talk about it. There was an ethnic secession organized crime uh, way before my time in the, probably, I'd guess, in the mid-60s and things like that. The the Traficantes and the Gambinos of the world got, were already out of business. I mean, they were old guys and they made their money. And so the, the succession was uh, specific ethnic groups, Vietnamese groups, African-American groups, Leroy Nicky Barnes, for example, who who's out in your neck of the woods. He was, remember, in, in Los Angeles. But most of the typical La Cosa Nostra mafia guys were out of the business in the 60s and 70s. Um, they were, you know, it's sort of like an interesting, people say, well, I want to investigate organized crime. But it, it was different. It wasn't the typical Italian mob guys or all the ethnic groups. And I know, I know, like you, you obviously were the organized crime group supervisor uh, for Reno. But when you were in the Miami Dowd police detective air, uh, realm, like kind of give us an example of the stuff that you would investigate, just like the everyday sort of crime. So in, in Miami days, uh, date I was in uh, what they called then Vice Intelligence Narcotics Central Central Narcotics, and so we did. Uh, heroin, cocaine cases, those kinds of cases, purchased them undercover uh, and things like that. And there's oh, wow. always, always plenty of that to go around. That was a big office. So Wayne, you would be one of those guys that would be undercover and pretend that you were buying drugs from someone and then bust them? Yes. Yeah. In, the, in those days, of course, we didn't have this gray hair going on. We had uh, dark hair and a ponytail. And, and we took, as I look back, we took huge chances in in what we did because even if we didn't have money with us we would have a briefcase that they would think that we had money in to buy and buy large quantities of drugs so it's a miracle that we didn't get robbed 
and, and Wayne, explain kind of uh, the main drugs that you guys would uh, go after, like the cocaine, the heroin, the hardcore, dangerous stuff. Yeah, in those days, uh, the, it was Mexican heroin. It was after the French Connection. There was white, and they they moved they moved heroin, um, usually down coming out of Mexico, and it was brown, brown heroin. Yeah. And so that that typically was our focus. There was a different group of of uh, detectives that worked cocaine in some high end areas, but I was I was mostly um, working heroin in a ghetto. And speaking of fentanyl. Um, you know, ta talking about that a little bit with, with everything going on with the drugs, what do you make of that? I mean, obviously it wasn't around back then, but now it's becoming a big problem. Well, it's huge. It's, it's worse than anything I've ever seen. And I mentioned that in the book, um, hundred thousand overdoses so far on fentanyl. Um, and so I recommend in the, in the book that schools get Narcan it's over the counter. Now it's $35 for two doses. And so as part of our plan for schools, Rory, we, we suggest and recommend that they have Narcan on, on hand, even, even in elementary school. So let's say the, little, the kids in, the, in fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth grade, uh, they're not gonna probably be on fentanyl, but they might bring a package that they, they saw their older brothers or sisters have, they might bring it and it's transdermal, which, which means you can, you can touch it and it will affect you through through your skin, or you can inhale it. You don't even have to 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 do anything with it on purpose. It's it's insane. It, it's absolutely mind blowing. And and I got to ask you, you know, talking about this whole Rumsfeld stuff, um, how was that? How was working for him? He was great. We traveled with him. The guy was um, was just a prince. Um, traveled. Uh, he has a Rumsfeld Foundation, and every summer. We went to uh, one of the Caucasus, um, Kyrgyzstan, Georgia, Mongolia, and it was just, a, the, like I said, probably the biggest honor of my life uh, to be able to coordinate security for him and, and travel with him. And uh, we buried him a couple of years ago in Arlington, um, and he, huge loss. And when when you when you would you would you spend pretty much every day with him? I mean, when you were you like his go-to guy? I mean, would you? No, I was with him on book signings and and travel. So remember, he has the three books: Known and Unknown, which is just a, a great book; Rumsfeld Rules, which is the the rule book that uh, the very sayings that he had um, that Gerald Ford told him to to keep track of and write. And then uh, when the center held, that was his last book that written about Gerald Ford. Yeah. And so he, he wrote, he wrote a lot of books. Well, he wrote those three primary books that are, that were, were bestsellers. And, and, and I will I want to say, you know, he, he served in the Bush administration for, he served all eight years in there, didn't he with him? He did. Yep. And then, so you, did you know him when he was in the Bush administration? No, I did not. I, I met him at just as he was, just as he was leaving. But remember, he was the, he was the youngest secretary of defense under Gerald Ford and the oldest under Bush 43, the only man in history to be the secretary of defense twice. Wow. And 
like uh, I do have to ask, did you, you, when you went to his funeral, probably a lot of people showed up, right? A lot of, a lot of the people he worked with, a lot of recognizable names, stuff like that. Yeah, I, I believe it was limited, but yes, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, a bunch of high-ranking military people, members of the Supreme Court. Um, I, I went there with his wife. I took his wife, Joyce. Oh, uh, wow. You, you were that close with the family. Wow. And so it was a, it was a, it was both, it was bittersweet. Um, it was a sad day, but it was also, uh, you know, what he wanted to be buried in Arlington. He was a captain in the Navy. He was a pilot. So it was perfect for that. And what, what's your, what's your fondest memory of him? Well, I've been in 10 years. Um, uh, we went to, geez, a lot of places together and, and, um, uh, he was, he is quite the character. Um, I remember one time driving him down from, we, we were leaving MacDill Air Force Base in Tampa and we were late. He was a guy that would never leave a book line if there was anybody in the line. So for example, Barnes and Noble would say, okay, you, we've got an hour. And if there were 25 people still in line, he would never leave. He would he would sign the books. So we're driving to, from, from Tampa to Sarasota and we got pulled over for speeding and I'm driving my car. And as the trooper came up to the window, he yelled, give him a ticket, give him a ticket. And the trooper looked in the window and said, is that the secretary of defense? I said, yeah. He said, can I have my picture taken? And so uh, I asked him and he said, of course. So he stepped out of the car. The trooper wanted a picture taken with him. He said, thanks a lot, guys, be safe. And just as the trooper was walking back to his car, he said, officer, aren't you going to give him a ticket? <laughs> so that's, that's the way he, that's the way he was. He was always kidding. I love it, man. I love it. And, and like, you know, in, in politics, have you spent a lot of time around Washington, DC, around this sort of atmosphere? Not that much. Um, I try to avoid the beltway at all costs. I don't blame you, man. It's uh, it's quite the swamp. I mean, what, yes. do, what do you make? What do you make of everything going on right now? Well, it's Not surreal. It's, it's it's surreal. I was listening to your previous guest, and uh, you know, I sometimes I turn the television on, I just shake my head um, at at what we see. But we just have to make it, I guess, for another year or so. I mean, is this the worst you've ever seen it in all your years? I mean, you are you've worked in all these departments. You've been heavily involved in, in many of these realms. I want to hear your take on this. Well, you know what? From 30,000 feet, Rory, my worry is we're not respected like we should be. No. I don't, you know, under other administrations, some of these things, Ukraine, the South China Sea, those kinds of the, the, the soon-to-be invasion of Taiwan, those things would not happen if we didn't appear to be so weak. Yeah. No, I hear you. I hear you. And, and I have to ask you, um, what was the largest drug bust you ever did? Like what was the biggest amount of heroin or Coke or meth or whatever? I think in those days, probably 20 or 30 kilos. I don't Holy think that, shit. I don't think that was a big deal. Um, 20 we had, to 30 kilos wasn't a big deal? Well, it, I mean, compared to now, uh, we we indicted in, in a in, with an interagency task force from DEA. Uh, we indicted a, a bunch of people in uh, 
it's called the Forcer Investigation. We identified 500 and some people in a heroin trafficking organization. At the time, it was the largest in the United States, but there have been bigger ones since. Um, but that's really, that's really not that big a thing by comparison to today's seizures. Were you dealing with a lot of people coming across the board? Like, because I know you said you were down in Florida, and I know there's a lot of illegals down there. Were, was, was that the demographic you were dealing with a lot? Not at all. We didn't have that happen in those days. We Mostly it was uh, the, the big traffickers were, were, Colombian, were Colombian or Cuban, Cubans that were, were lawfully in the country. Oh, wow. Did you ever have to confront gangs or anything like that? No, that was never one of my uh, assignments. Nothing like that. Um, I hear I, I'm, I'm looking now. You're a nationally certified firearms instructor who regularly trains armed private school and house of worship personnel as well as law enforcement. I love that man, and and I've been saying for a long time we need armed security uh, at schools and churches. Uh, because I feel like those are some of the main targets of these psychopaths who go on these shooting tirades. And uh, if we're protecting our politicians, celebrities, athletes with uh, firearms, then uh, we should be protecting our churches and our schools. Well, one of the things with schools and, and to some extent with houses of worship, you have to have a plan. You have to harden the target. And in our, in our business, Rory, if you have to go to gun, in other words, you have to use your gun, your plan has failed. So what, I'm, what I mean by that is that your perimeters, your locked doors, all those kinds of things that you need, that's probably 90, 95%. So especially inside a school or inside a church, if you've got to draw a gun to defend, you're... Oh, wait, what happened to Wayne? We lost Wayne for a second. Hold on a sec. Wayne, are you still with us? We'll take a quick commercial and we'll come right back. Stay with us, everybody. We'll come right back with Wayne. Wayne, you there? Just like that, a moment turns romantic. So why pause to take a pill? And when you're having fun, why stop to find a bathroom? With Cialis for daily use, you don't have to plan around either. It's the only daily tablet approved to treat erectile dysfunction, so you can be ready anytime the moment is right. Plus, Cialis treats the frustrating urinary symptoms of BPH, like needing to go frequently, day or night. Tell your doctor about all your medical conditions and medicines and ask if your heart is healthy enough for sex. Do not take Cialis if you take nitrates for chest pain or a dempus for pulmonary hypertension, as it may cause an unsafe drop in blood pressure. Do not drink alcohol in excess. Side effects may include headache, upset stomach, delayed backache, or muscle ache. To avoid long-term injury, get medical help right away for an erection lasting more than four hours. If you have any sudden decrease or loss in hearing or vision, or any symptoms of an allergic reaction, stop taking Cialis and get medical help right away. Why pause the moment? Ask your doctor about Cialis for daily use. And for a $200 savings card, go to Cialis.com. Wayne, I think we have you. You there? Yeah, sorry about that. I don't know what happened. Uh, I don't know either. I don't know what happened. Uh, but as you were saying, though, go ahead with the with the defense school oh, yeah. stuff. If you if you're if you have to go to gun, your plans failed, and you're down in that last 
five percent of, of of survival if that happens. So the trick with schools worry is to harden the target, have perimeters, fences, have a choke point, a locked door. I mean, we've looked. I talked about this in the book. We've looked at every school shooting since Columbine, Columbine, Sandy Hook, Uvalde, Parkland, all those shootings. And there's always been red flags. By that, I mean the shooter, and they don't snap, by the way, shooters decide to, to shoot at a school. They told somebody, or they, their behavior changed. We call it observable concerning behavior. Teachers realized, oh yeah, he came to work. I mean, he came to school, he smelled different, he looked different, he acted different. Looks like he hadn't slept in days and all those kinds of things. Well, we want teachers to do something about it, report it, and and do something about it at at the time. So um, the whole purpose of the book, School Insecurity, is for parents and grandparents and, and teachers to hold school boards and schools responsible for the protection of their child. That's what it's about. And how how can we implement this into the into the system where we have armed guards at every church at every school i mean if you were in charge how would you go about this well some states are doing it and some states aren't let me tell you the dichotomy texas and florida for example requires by law armed police officers or school resource officers at every school and that's not you know that's that's like the last resort the school needs to have a plan too colorado for example um many of the boards of education are defunding police and they're taking armed officers away from schools. So it's about a hard target. If I'm a, if I want to be a school shooter, why would I attack a school where there's a police officer there when I can go down the street and attack a school where there's no police officer? So look what happened in Tennessee. That was chilling video, right? This person drove by the, a parking lot a playground full of kids right up to the front door shot through the door and went in and and uh, and shot some people and that was uh, a great police response right the police got there pretty quickly they they uh, they neutralized the shooter but it was still you know five or six minutes and four or five or six people died so that that shouldn't happen oh i agree i agree and now I, I will say that, you know, this whole war on guns and this whole gun control nonsense from the left is out of control. You know, there are more guns than there are people. Um, and, you know, these gun laws only leave the good guy defenseless, you know. It, well, it's you're from California, so you know this firsthand. Well, I'm, a, orig I'm originally from Seattle, Washington, which is just as bad, you know. Uh, but it, yeah, it's it's kind of the same. But. It's it, look, it's a knee jerk reaction. People think they need to do something, and it's a knee jerk reaction. But we right. we don't take cars away from law abiding citizens when a drunk driver runs somebody over. Right. And so it's really not about guns. It wasn't about guns so much in Uvalde, for example, it was a failure of leadership, right? Those guys stood outside, they didn't engage for over an hour. Do you do you ever think stuff like Uvalde could be like an inside job? I mean, the, the fact that they stayed outside, I don't know any other police department, I don't know any other, any other situation where that would happen. I mean, we saw, we've seen it a few times, sure, but 99% of the time, the police are going into the school. I mean, Parkland and Uvalde um, 
are obviously an exception. Yeah. So Uvalde, I think it's a matter of muscle memory and training and things like that. They did first. They didn't have a school resource officer there. They didn't uh, have a plan to lock all the doors. One door was faulty. Uh, the first four or five people that got there, you'll see on the video, they start to go down the hall. Shots are fired, and they're holding their ears. Well, if you don't have earmuffs on, like you never would in a shooting, that's very painful. So they they had this. Uh, there's a fight flight or freeze mechanism. They froze. And a good forensic psychologist, friend of ours, Dr. Harley Stock, tells us that that was groupthink, that after the first five or six people didn't engage, the rest of the officers were probably neurologically incapable of engaging. So it was only when the Bortech officer, the Border Patrol tactical guy, who was getting his hair cut, who borrowed a gun from the barber, went straight in and, and neutralized the shooter. But everything about that was wrong. I mean, the, remember the police chief got there. Uh, he's been fired now, thank God. Police chief got there. He didn't have a radio. So it, everything about that, it was just such a travesty. And, and you're a Florida guy. How, 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 do, how much do you know about the Parkland um, police department that was dealing with the situation uh, I think it's what five, six years ago now. Do you know anything? Do you know much about those guys? Do you know any of them? I don't know anyone that was there. That was Broward County Sheriff's Office. Who actually yeah, were yeah. There. And and recently, the the state attorney's office had charged um, the guy who waited and didn't go in and rescue, and he was acquitted by right. by a jury trial. Uh, it was disappointing because we wanted that to send a message that you know you you've got an absolute duty to go in and and the rest. Um, that was just, that was so bad. In the book, um, I really go into that that shooting quite a bit. And uh, we interviewed Lori Adeloff, whose daughter, Alyssa, um, the, the, the name after Alyssa's law now, was, yeah. uh, was in, involved in that. She was killed. And Lori now is chairperson of the Broward County School Board. So she has, she has spun that, or she has dedicated her life now into keeping schools safe. So there's a, there's a chilling and tear-jerking interview uh, in, the, in my book about uh, talking to Lori. And, and I got I to gotta ask you, you know, your thoughts on Sandy Hook, the Las Vegas shooting. The Las Vegas shooting is one that really bugs me because we don't really have – like any answers. I mean, that, that totally went under the rug. I mean, do you, do you have any thoughts on a lot of these things? Sandy Hook, no. Um, I think it is what it is. We, we talk about that in the book. Las Vegas, uh, if Las Vegas would have been what we call a CCA, a complex coordinated attack, meaning uh, a shooter up top and three or four shooters on the ground where they where all those people would run into a funnel, um, they, they would have killed thousands of people. Um, and, and I know what you're talking about. There's a lot of conjecture back and forth. Was he alone or was he, or was, did he have help, uh, with all those guns? I mean, who knows? Um, there was, I, I understand there was two meals in the room, a vegetarian meal and a steak meal. Um, so what we, we've never known is the autopsy, the stomach contents of the, uh, of the, of the shooter, the deceased. 
So what did he eat, the vegetarian meal or the steak or both? And if he only ate one of them, who ate the other one? No, that's a good point. No. Yeah, and, I, and we wonder. We wonder. And I just, you know, our, our government, they lie, they lie so much, Wayne. Do you trust our government? You know, I want to. I mean, I, I like you, watch a, a lot of the lies on television. Um, remember Las Vegas, that's big bucks out there. You know, uh, just think of the think of the pressure, tourism, and all those things. We want to believe, and we we have to some extent. We all have normalcy bias. We want to believe. Who? At least they got him. They got him. There's nobody else, or he shot himself. There's nobody else out there. And what? Do you, what about the tranny in Nashville? We never got the manifesto released. No, that's that's highly suspicious. I, I've been been talking about that. Um, I hope that comes out. Um, there's no reason not to release that manifesto that the shooter is dead and right. there's no pending investigation. There's no pending prosecution. There's no reason not to release the manifesto other than the whole, um, uh, tranny thing. Yeah, it's, it's very disturbing. It's very disturbing. And I have to, I have to bring this up to you. It says you conduct threat assessments for government agencies, schools, and house of worship. Kind of explain that to the audience. So um, with Homeland Security, one of the things we did, penetration surveys. We, that was a threat assessment. We'd yeah. see, if we could, see if we could break in. Now in private practice, a threat assessment is an all-hazards approach to see it, what we, we try to say we're going to think like the enemy. How would we get in to a house of worship or a school? And we do that, we brief them, we try to train them then, and we give them a, a confidential draft report. So we look at everything from locks, alarms, um, windows. The windows can be protected now. They can be ballistic with a certain kind of a film. We look at, at school, we look at the nurse's office. Does she have the proper amount of tourniquets? Does she have Narcan for fentanyl? Does she have stop the bleed kits? Is everyone trained? Do they have an AED? Just everything you can imagine. And, you know, I want I want to uh, bring something else up, you know, with the security scenario. You know, you've been in this business for a long time with artificial intelligence and, and where technology is, how evolved everything has become. Where do you see sec the security business headed? Obviously, it's going to go in, into a different direction and, and things are moving really fast. I mean, I, I can only imagine the change of pace. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, who knows about the AI stuff? Um, facial recognition, facial identification has been around a long time. Video management software uh, can cause cameras to think and make reports. And that, that those are, those are all great. Um, but who knows what, what the downside is going to be. But for right now, I, I love the technology that's out there. Yeah. And back when you were like working for a lot of these government officials, you know, like Janet Reno and stuff, and, you know, you were involved with a lot of the law enforcement um, issues. I'm sure it concerns you because back then the FBI uh, wasn't acting in the corrupt manner that they are doing today. Well, no. And, and still, when you think about right now, the rank and file um, agents, We've got a bunch of friends that are that are retired and still there. A lot of the retired guys can't believe what's happening at, at the at the top end. Um, yeah, but it really makes you wonder. I mean, that as you know, 
was always thought of to be the elite agency and, and everything like that. But the politics on the, on this, what, I don't know, they say the seventh floor or whatever it is, um, bothers me. Anytime you have a, a director that goes before Congress and refuses to answer questions is that's, that's a problem. Do you, do you think defunding the FBI is the right thing to do? No, absolutely not. I think fixing it is, is the way to do it. And hopefully the next president, whoever it is, will fix it and from the top down. And same thing at the, at the Department of Justice at certain levels. How, how do we fix it, though? I mean, don't you think it's, it's a deep swamp? And even if we get rid of the bad apples, there's still going to be people on the outside advising these new individuals that go in. I feel like it's a a situation that is so just, I don't know. I even, I don't know if we can repair it. I, your thoughts. I don't know either. I, I just, I'm optimistic. I hope so. Uh, you clean house at the top level. You make sure that they're, they're um, responsible to and, and, uh, and are available to talk and tell the truth to the oversight committees in Congress. Um, yeah. And if they, and if they don't, or they they claim some weird privilege or refuse to talk uh, or get held in contempt you just blow them out of there but the the guy in the white house has got to do that whoever that is and what do you think of christopher christopher ray's testimony what do you think about that last well, week well it's 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 amorphous it's circuitous um he he, <laughs> he wouldn't get pinned down and give direct direct answers to anything you know, just like the questioning on the laptop. Do you have, where's the laptop? Do you have it? Did you look at it? Who looked at it? He knows that, but yet he, he didn't want to answer. So um, it, it's a shame. I and mean, he's really flipping the finger at, at Congress, which is what they're there for. And it's probably concerning to you that the DOJ has been targeting Catholic churches and uh, places of worship. You know, I'm, I was born and raised Catholic. I uh, went to Catholic grade school, Catholic high school. Um, your thoughts on this, though? I mean, we've seen the FBI do some crazy, crazy things as of lately, like I mentioned earlier. Well, yeah, it's a shame. The worst thing was the 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 pressure from the teachers union to the FBI to get the attorney general of the United States to call parents at school board meetings extremists or domestic terrorists. That's just outrageous. And um, that's where we're, I think we're off the off the reservation, so to speak, on that. I mean, that just and this this push on white supremacy, right? White supremacists are the most dangerous threat to the United States. Today. <laughs> well, I mean, I I can't I can't find any, so I I I, I don't even know if they exist. I mean, I, I I don't see it. Like the media tries to spin that narrative and think that this country is so racist. I, I don't see it. Well, I, I tell them, look, a bunch of white supremacists from North Georgia did not fly those planes into the world trade center. Correct. Very, very, very good point. Um, that's very true. That's very true. And, and, you know, I will, I want to ask you this, you know, you, you're very involved in education. Do you think the number one way that we fix this whole mess is getting rid of the Department of Education, abolishing it? I don't know. I haven't dealt with the with the uh, federal Department of Education. I can tell you that it's a state by state fight. Um, <laughs> in Florida, 
the Department of Education is awesome, and they're yeah. insi and they're insisting that schools are secure. They there's an assessment tool that the school has to fill out, and it's right in the law. Same thing in Texas. You have to have armed people at schools. You have to do the right thing. You got to lock the doors and all that stuff. Some states are totally different. So depends on where you go. There's nothing like that in Delaware, Colorado, uh, California. So, I mean, if they all did the same thing, it would be great. A lot of parents are moving to these states or moving to a private school from public school just so their kids can be safe. Look, we want we want our kids and our grandkids to come home from school. It's, it's really a no-brainer. We protect banks and politicians and everything else. Um, we want to be able to protect schools the same way. And it's easy to do. I always say, Rory, if it's predictable, it's preventable. And there's no reason for a child to be hurt at a school in the United States. There are a bunch of reasons always. You know, well, this happened or that happened. But there's not one good reason. Yeah, and I want to kind of just switch topics real quick. I, I want to mention about the massive crime in all these Democrat cities. Do you think the main reason this is happening is because of the defund the police movement? Well, that and you have prosecutors. It's really a cause and that effect. Too, yeah. Look, anybody that's listening that has a child knows this. If your child runs out in the traffic, you say, don't run out in traffic. And if they try to run out in traffic again, you stop them. Maybe you whack them on the butt, right? So that's some little bit of a punishment, a cause and effect. If you can rob a store and bond out and get out of jail the same day to rob another store and then get out of jail and rob another store, keep keeping in mind that you only get caught about 5% of the time, why, why wouldn't you do it? It's like it's like in some of these cities, it's like Mad Max. I mean, look at look at Oakland, California. Yeah. The, the recent, recent stuff there, I was at San Francisco I think a, a couple of years ago, I couldn't believe the smell. I love San Francisco, but the, the, the human human excrement on the street and those tents, it's just unbelievable. Right. No, I hear you. I hear you. I got to ask you, what, what what's your biggest accomplishment in your career? The most thing, the thing you're most proud of? Well, I think uh, uh, being with Secretary Rumsfeld is right up there, but I think this book I hope this book will help school insecurity. And um, I, we put a lot of thought into it. Um, Melinda Bryce helped me write it, um, put it, organize it, put it together. It took us about took us about six months. And uh, I really, I, I'm really looking forward to having people use it, take it to school boards, and ask those questions. Who's in charge of my child's safety? Give me the name. Not a bunch of people. Not a not a committee that not going like pointing the, okay, it's, well, it might be that guy. They need to know who by name is in charge and then talk about the budget. So I really like that part. Is this, is this your first book? It is. Nice. And what do you, what do you, what do you want the biggest takeaway to be? Um, that we don't, the children are just as important. We can protect the president yeah. of the United States and all these politicians. Our kids are just as important. There's no reason for a child to be hurt in a school, if schools do it right, they, they, they have to have a commitment at the board level that it won't happen at our school. Amen. Amen. Wayne, I want to get you back here very soon. I love having you with us. Uh, tell everybody where they can find you, where they can get involved. Okay. Well, the, the book is on Books A Million, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. And I'm in Miami at wayneblack.com. 
Perfect, my friend. Perfect. Well, it's been a pleasure, and we will talk to you very soon. Thank you so much. All righty, buddy. Thank you. Have a great weekend. You too. Oh, it's been a great show today, everybody. I want to thank you all for tuning in. We will see you all next week. Have a fantastic weekend. Another episode of Rory Sodder and the news in the books. Until next time, I'm Rory Sodder. God bless. Much love. Cheers, everybody.